Your move, creep. Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. The only thing I know how to do. It's a good-looking boy. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate. That's right, Lord. Welcome to Earth. You crossed the line. Yeah, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Retrograde Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about older movies. We talk about how they were made, how they were received, and whether or not they hold up. I am Austin. And I'm George. All right, so we are kicking off the month of December. We're, we're going to have a really exciting December month. Uh, we've got a lot of different films to talk about, and we're going to be starting it off with an interesting film. Uh, yeah, interesting is a good way to put it. <laughs> interesting is, is a way to put it, yeah. Another way to describe it is one of the highest grossing movies of all time. The Yep, the yeah. highest grossing film of all time. Marvel has tried, but they were not able to take that throne. They weren't able to take that space. <laughs> um, and we've talked about this man before. Uh, this is going to be our second episode. And we're going to be talking about this man again later in the month to celebrate... His other film, one of the other highest grossing films of all time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This On this episode, we are going to be talking about James Cameron's Avatar from 2009. Not the Avatar The Last Airbender. This is the Avatar The Blue People one. You know, we, we're going to talk about Titanic later in the month because it's celebrating its yeah. 25th anniversary, I believe. 25th anniversary. Mm -hmm. And Titanic is an awesome film. I remember it being awesome. Um... That's a, that's a really great film to talk about. But we wanted to talk about Avatar because the sequel, The Way of Water, is coming out later in the month. And we were like, all right, let's, before we go watch that movie, let's rewatch the original. Let's see, how does it hold up? I, You know, I liked it when I saw it in theaters, but I, I thought it was like, okay, it's an interesting film. But I didn't love it. I just thought it was cool. You know, I mean, when you compare it to like his other films, uh, aliens terminator 2 like it just does it's not the same yeah but a lot of people like this movie this is the most watched movie of all time probably and it is it is kind of cool how it, it was something that he made because mm -hmm. we, we talked about terminator how it's something he made but he sold the rights to it for a dollar and then kind of lost custody of them ever since then pretty much mm -hmm. this is something that he he made Right. Even though it's kind of like, well, this is Dances with Wolves. This is Fern Gully. This is a lot of other things. But, you know, the Navi and, and Obtainium, like that's all, you know, he, he wrote that. This down. is his planet. <laughs> you know? This is his planet. Yeah. Those are his creations. This is not based off a comic or a, a book right. or anything. This is a James Cameron original piece. And it's interesting that, you know, in this era of IP driven films and studios and blockbusters, you know, it's like. The highest grossing film, the one that toppled them all, was an original work by James Cameron. That is pretty badass. It's, no, no, no. I, it, I, it very much is badass. And it gives me hope that original IPs still have a place in the industry. Now, granted, yes, they're, they're talking about Avatar 7, you know, <laughs> which God knows if that's actually going to happen. But still, kudos to James Cameron, you know, like mm -hmm. kudos to Stan Lee, you know. And again, I... I feel like I say this on every episode. We don't hate Marvel. We I enjoy them a lot, but it does feel like there's other movies out there. Yes, it, it just feels like every week is like another superhero thing. And Avatar is like, okay, this just feels a little bit more refreshing 
Um, especially since it's been like what 13, 12 years since the, the first one came out. It's like, whoa, okay. Like mm-hmm. I'm ready to jump back in. Ready to go back to Pandora. Yeah, and it's funny because again, like I said before, I'm not crazy about the original Avatar, but I have become like an Avatar to apologist. <laughs> I I I think so too. Like I I think I saw it originally in 3D and everything, and I was like, okay, that was pretty cool. But it it was like the highest grossing movie of all time. Like, wait, why? Yeah. Why do people like that movie? No one remembers that movie. And then I met my girlfriend, and she loves Avatar. Really huge. Yes, huge Avatar head. And of course, like the obnoxious like film snob I was at the time, I was like, can you even quote that movie? And then she just started naming quotes, like left and right. Like that's not a real quote. And then I watched the movie, like, oh my god, how how do you remember this really? movie so well? I didn't know Leanna liked yeah. Avatar. Yes, very excited for part two. She's so excited for part two that she doesn't want to watch any of the trailers because she oh, doesn't want anything spoiled. That that's how you know you're serious if you're like, I don't want to see yeah. anything about this. Oh, that's interesting. So she kind of, in a way, converted you into the Avatar family. Yeah, and then I have other friends who who enjoy the movie a lot, and just hearing them talk about it and like thinking about it, I'm like, okay, I can see why this movie resonated so well with, with so many people. Mm-hmm. And there's the the way it ends; it's diff- it's very different from the way those other movies end, where like you have this guy coming from an imperialist nation, coming to meet the indigenous people, learning their ways, and then he has to like fight against his own kind to like protect them. We've actually covered a movie that kind of did that already uh, in The Beast. Yeah, oh, that, that, that's what I was thinking. It's a very popular trope, but I think this movie ends in a, a way that's very different from every, everything else that, that copies that, that uh, story structure. Mm, interesting. I didn't think about it that way. I mean, I haven't thought about this movie too much, um, except on kind of like the grander scale. So I don't really, when I think of Avatar, I don't think of, the film i think about what it is in the industry the bigger context because i mean when i saw this i saw this movie in theaters i it was an unmemorable experience like i i honestly can't tell you what that day was like when i saw it in theaters i just remember i saw it in theaters because my dad wanted to see it um but i <laughs> like i don't like i there are experiences in theaters that i could vividly remember and this is not one of them and i left like being like okay this is fine that year the avatar lost the best picture award at the oscars to the hurt locker and i much prefer which i thought was so funny oh because because catherine bigelow was his ex-wife yeah the director of the hurt locker was married to james cameron they got they separated they went on to compete for the best oscar best picture oscar (laughs) she won uh, james cameron lost her and and i do i still stand by the say that the hurt locker is a better film i I love the hurt locker i think that's a awesome i think it's a really yeah i think it's a good movie too yeah and it's it's one that's like this is a really good movie but I don't want to watch it again. Oh, I you know? I, I rewatch it every few years because I just I really do. I, I think the the way she directs it is really cool. It's like a very yes, it's a very gritty action film. Yeah, Catherine Bigelow's def is it Bigelow, not Bigelow. Bigelow, I believe. Okay, Catherine Bigelow's very uh, underrated director. I think. Oh, oh, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's phenomenal, and she's been doing this since the eighties. Um, yeah, I. I, I saw Point Break recently. I was like, damn, she's always had it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. She had it even before then with Near Dark. The, the vampire oh, yeah, movie. Dark. Oh, 
Mm-hmm. What? We got to we actually got to do a Catherine Bigelow episode. Um we do. I I nominate Point Break. Point Break is a good <laughs> one. That's a classic. That. Um but yeah, I mean, I was I felt this movie was okay. Um I was like it's it's mm-hmm. fine. I, it wasn't remarkable. But I do think it's interesting that this film has kind of overtaken the box office leaderboard. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's an original IP. It's taken 13 years to make a sequel. So, you know, that this, this isn't something that, um, they're just green lighting so they can make more money. This seems like it is really a passion project, which I always get behind when filmmakers make passion projects and not just James Cameron, but like Mm -hmm. anybody, anybody who in Hollywood who could still get passion projects made that aren't superhero related. I'm excited for them. Like Guillermo del Toro is releasing Pinocchio, like, um, uh, stop motion, stop motion animated film Pinocchio, and I'm really excited for that because he's wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing that kind of bugs me is that people are like, "Well, nobody cares, nobody wants to see this movie," and I'm like, "Don't sell James Cameron short because because we've sold yeah. this, this man short before, and he always turns it around." It is going to draw a lot of people to the theaters because this the story is like really simple and stuff, but it's like the what he chooses to show with all the special effects and everything, it's really, really pretty to look at. And it's pretty no matter what country you're from, Mm -hmm. you know? Because this movie is popular worldwide. Mm -hmm. It's funny because one of my early criticisms of the film was that, well, it's just like every other film. It's like Pocahontas. It's like Ferngully, the Dances with the Wolves. That was my... When people like, why didn't you love Avatar? That was my go-to excuse. It's like, it's too... Like, it's too basic. The story is too basic. We've been there, done that. But I think that's part... I think that was done very intentionally. I think that was done very... I think that was done very intentionally on James Cameron's part because when you're making a film that costs as much as Avatar, which Avatar was pushing the boundaries in terms of technology, right? With the cameras, with the motion Mm -hmm. capture. This movie is expensive. We're going to get into the budget of this movie. But it's a big fucking budget. You have to tell a story yeah. that's going to be universally appealing to everyone in order to make your money back. That's just how Hollywood works. You can't, especially when you're when you're when your movie's going to cost that much. You literally cannot make a story that's going to alienate people. We've seen Marvel films uh, lean into politics a bit more, and that's alienated the, the the Chinese government. And now China won't release a lot of Marvel films. And they're mm-hmm. they're fine. They're fine with taking the hit on that. But Marvel films don't cost as much as much as a next Avatar, you know. And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of something that I've turned around with the original film. It's like okay, it might be basic, but it was done intentionally. I feel like he had to do that. Yeah, and I, I think there is something that's really interesting about Cameron. Is I feel like a lot of his stuff is very like anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist. Mm-hmm. But his movies make like the most money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's really interesting. Like Terminator Two, the bad guys are all cops, but it's the first hundred million dollar movie. Uh, Avatar, it's very anti colonial, but it's you know in theaters. It's a United States made film that's in theaters across the country, in, or across the world. I mean, 
it's 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 kind of funny. well and then you could even take it a step further you know i think he has uh it's funny because he he has like a lot of guns a lot of military personnel in his movies but they're always they're not always painted in the best light aliens they're aliens they're the bad guys well in aliens most of the military people are kind of incompetent you only have a few that are really good <laughs> and in the end of the day sigourney weaver is the one that saves them yeah, they're like overconfident in their abilities to like psh, it's just another bug hunt, and then they just get wrecked. They get absolutely <laughs> wrecked. Uh, what was it? Titanic. You know, you've got the upper mm-hmm. class and you've got the lower class like on this ship, and the upper class are not painted as like great people. In fact, the people who own this ship are like clearly negligent, and they're like, "Fuck it." Yeah. Like it's just. I have a child. <laughs> it's just a certain, you know, like he he definitely does critique there he has critique in his work and now i don't think mm-hmm. he go he does not go as far as he could but it's there yeah and maybe that's why it's so universally appealing because we always identify with his his underdogs you know there's only so many rich people that are like that's me as you know yeah um but we always identify with those people and that's that's kind of like a, a global thing oh yeah jack's the, jack's the main character and he's the one that like we root for it's like don't be stupid, oh, Ro- don't be stupid, Rose. Go for Jack. Leave Billy Zane. He's evil. <laughs> I, w- I would think Rose is more the main. Well, we can get into that when we go to yeah. Titanic. But all right, so that's that's for what we remember. We're gonna look for the special effects and uh, try to figure out why this movie is so popular with people. I kind of want to talk about the ending and how it separates it from the rest of those movies. But let's talk about the year that this movie was released, yeah. two thousand nine. So in 2009 at the domestic box office, this this is probably not fair to Avatar, but it was released on December 18th of 2009. Uh-huh. So it only made, you know, money in 13 days yeah, yeah. of 2009, technically. Mm-hmm. So the number one movie of 2009 was Transformers Revenge of the Really? Fallen. Wow. Yes, with with 402 million at the domestic box office. This is just domestic. Uh-huh. And number 2, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince with 301. That's a banger million. of a film. Love it. Number 3, Up. Oh. Two, 293 million at the box office, domestic box office. And 4 was Twilight Saga, New Moon. And uh, then number five was Avatar with two hundred. Holy shit! Avatar only had thirteen days in December, and it was number five. Right. <laughs> number six is The Hangover. Number seven was the reboot for Star Trek. And number eight was Monsters vs. Aliens. Number nine, Ice Age: Dawn of the Dinosaurs. And number ten was The Blind Side. Wow. Blyside was number 10? Yeah, what a wild year. You've got IPs, movies based on real life stories. You've got new IPs. That is a super strange box office. I figured... Yeah, no Marvel movies. No, no, no. I figured... (laughs) Well, no, there weren't any that came out in 09. Well, there was X-Men Origins Wolverine, which was at number 11. Oh, oh, gotcha, gotcha. gotcha. Which isn't like a Disney Marvel. It's the The Fox Fox X-Men Thing. That is a super weird year. And you know what? It makes a lot more sense. That's why Paramount invested so heavily into Transformers. I forgot that Transformers was a huge franchise, but <laughs> it is. If this was the number one film, yeah. Paramount had a good year because they had they had uh 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 Transformers and Star uh uh 
Star Trek, the reboot. That is insane. Mm-hmm. And then you have the, the Hangover, which I love The Hangover. Yep. That movie's awesome. But I hate that movie. I feel like you would. I, I'm sorry, but you <laughs> definitely seem like the type to be like, I hate that movie. I love that movie. It. And it's at number six, seven? Number six, yeah. Look, you may hate the movie, but you have to admit, that's for, for a comedy. For an R-rated comedy? That's not, huge. Not based, not based. That's why they made three movies. Well, that's what I was going to say. That's why they see that right there. When you said that, I was like, okay, no wonder they made a sequel immediately afterwards. Okay. Right. Wow. Um, that, but that, I didn't even know Up was number three. That's This is a weird year. The next year, Avatar was number one yeah. with 466. So it's total like gross in the United States was 749. Yeah. It's as much as the um, top two in 2009 put together domestic it's more than that man isn't that crazy and then if you go worldwide oh oh it's it, it two over two billion dollars yeah every market and that's the thing too i mean that's that's kind of the brilliance of having it be like a, a story uh that isn't like confined to like specific races or ideologies or stuff you have something where it's it's like star wars you know you have the mechanical world and then you have the spiritual earthly one and yeah there's, there's- yeah you have like the the empire right mm-hmm. which they're like okay there's no country assigned to the empire yeah. but we know who the empire well, we know is, exactly who the empire know? is and and we do know like i should say smart smart people know who the empire <laughs> is <laughs> Some people don't. Some people haven't gotten there yet. But what's interesting, though, is like, you know, in Avatar, you could say, well, the humans are the bad ones. Like when I when I watch Avatar and I see the villains, I get American gun ho army type of dudes. Right. Like the douchey mm-hmm. ones, you know, like the really, yes. the really douchey mercenaries. Um, but really, like, it's, but if you want, but they never even say that. Really, you could keep it more vague and be like, well, just humanity are the villains in this movie, which I mean. Yeah, we kind of are. Yeah, but the main bad guy in Avatar, he's like... You are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora, ladies and gentlemen. Respect that fact every second of every day. If there is a hell, you might want to go there for some R&R after a tour on Pandora. Out there beyond that fence, Every living thing that crawls, flies, or squats in the mud wants to kill you and eat your eyes for jujubes. But it's it's vague, but we I think everybody else knows who that guy is. There's only one country that produces people like that. A hundred percent. That dude There's only one country. There's only one that. country that produces men like that. <laughs> so I is that all we have for right now? I think or so. For, oh, actually, if you would like to watch Avatar with us, you can watch it on Disney Plus because, you know, it's now Fox is now owned by Disney and they want to get in on that Avatar 2 money. So. Well, they already have a park in Disney World, so they're like, all right, we, might, we might as well. I have a friend who loves, loves theme parks and that, that the, the what do they call it? The Animal Kingdom, where, where the Avatar Land is, is her favorite theme park. Really? All time. Yeah, it's very interesting because in 2009, I would have been like, oh, what? They're making a theme park out of this. OK, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Little did I know. See, that's that's the problem with me, man. I like I lack vision. James Cameron, mm. he's got it. That's why he's. 
he's a visionary, man. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have much more to say after that. I, I, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> curious. I mean, I do want to see where the money went for to make this the production budget because this is not a cheap movie to make. This was very boundary pushing. I think it's very interesting because I feel like you have these people who will push visual effects and then everybody follows suit. And I feel like Avatar yes. was definitely definitely did that. And I feel like one of the people that benefited mm-hmm. most was Marvel and video game studios. I feel like video mm-hmm. game studios mm-hmm. and Marvel kind of took what James Cameron built with Avatar and worked around it. Because because I think with Marvel, it, look, back in 2008, you got you had Iron Man, which they did a great job in. But if you compare Iron Man to in- Avengers Endgame, I'd say Endgame resembles a lot more of the production side of avatar yeah but at the same time they do have special effects that are like wait what happened here you know i don't think there's any of that in avatar what do you mean like there's there's some special effects in the marvel movies that are like why does why doesn't this look as good no as, no 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 yeah but, well, and that goes down to production pipelines like that that yeah. goes down to the, the the vfx houses and how they approach projects and their deadlines and they're just like you have to crank this out by this date no matter what so you end up getting stuff that looks like hmm i feel like cgi should be better than this in 2022 yeah and that's interesting yeah i just feel like maybe avatar opened up the doors for future vfx work and yeah i I mean i could be wrong i do want to look into this that's kind of what i want to research but what i'm interested in is also with the sequel coming out Right. And James Cameron has a technology now to make what he wants to do for the second one. I'm like, is this going to open the same? Is this going to open new doors for VFX in the future? Because there's a lot of underwater work mm. that they're doing here. Um, they threw actors in pools of water, but I, I, I yeah, just... like didn't Kate Winslet's in this movie and she apparently broke Tom Cruise's like underwater record or something for like six minutes. Yeah. I'm curious if that's if this movie's gonna have the same effect where this movie comes out and just now all these other studios, not just Marvel, but all like Paramount. Uh, you, oh, they're gonna do like water movies. Not not so much water <laughs> movies, but maybe take the technology from here that this movie built Avatar way uh, the, mm. the shape of the way of water, the shape of water, the way of water, <laughs> and kind of like all right, let's let's see what we could use this technology for our Transformers property or for our Fast and Furious or for our. Um, you know, our superhero stuff. Because James Cameron has always been ahead of the curve when it comes to technology. And yeah. I don't doubt that he's pushing the envelope into what VFX can do. I'm I'm just curious to see what the impact is. I'm curious to see what the impact Avatar had on the industry at the time and trying to see if the new... You're going to make some uh, hypotheses, some predictions on what this one might do. Yeah, yeah, may- maybe. Uh, you know, okay. just maybe some... Just maybe try... Just play a little guessing game. And, you know, this... Maybe 10, 10 years from now, listen to this episode again and be like, oh, man, I was spot on. Or be like, ah, I was full of shit. Whichever. Yeah. All right. That sounds... That sounds good. All right. So if you would like to watch this movie with us, you can watch it on Disney+. Plus. And you can always rent it on those other sites, too. Uh, yeah, you can rent it on Amazon, YouTube, Apple TV, and Redbox. But you can watch it on Disney Plus if you have a subscription. And with that, we will see you in one minute. Forget the Wong Ti, wealthy of Tao. That is mother. She is Sakik, the one who interprets the will of Ewa. 
Who's Awa? What are you called? Judge Sully. Why did you come to us? Came to learn. We have tried to teach other Sky people. It is hard to fill a cup which is already full. Well, my cup is empty. Trust me. Just ask Dr. Augustine. I'm no scientist. What are you? I was a Marine. A, uh, a warrior of the Jarhead clan. It is decided. My daughter will teach you our ways. Learn well, Jake Sully. Then we will see if your insanity can be cured. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to your Retrograde Podcast. We have just finished watching 2009's Avatar. Directed and written by James Cameron. Uh, there, there's this is an interesting movie. I'm excited to talk mm-hmm. about it because um, me too. Well, well, okay. We'll we'll just get into it. First impressions, or I mean, second first impressions for you, Austin. Hmm. How do I put this? I like the movie a lot more now, probably, <laughs> like, and I appreciate it more now. And the the parts that I don't like is just in the beginning. I feel like after I get over the beginning, I feel like I'm more into the movie. And like when I was watching it again, I was getting a little worried. <laughs> um, but it's a long movie, but it doesn't feel long. And it makes me excited to see part two and to see it in theaters mm-hmm. with all the technology. Cause I definitely was like, damn, this movie looks good, but it looked even better when I saw it in theaters with all the the 3d and everything TV does not do this movie justice. No, it doesn't. Um, so yeah, I was, I had a great time. I'm very excited to talk about the movie. It's funny because I'm very, I feel the same way as you do. Um, so I remember watching this in 09 and being like, "Ah, it's cool. You know, the CGI is great, but the story is blah, you know, it's Pocahontas. It's, Mm-hmm. Ferngully, it's Dancing with Wolves, it's whatever, right? That that was still mm-hmm. in my pretentious film era, you know, 2009. Yes, we all, we all go through it. We, we all, all go, go through, through it. We all some go through people, that. Some people never grow out of it, and it's really unfortunate. No, yes, that was definitely part of... I mean, I feel like maybe it was a little bit earlier, but 2009 still had some douchey film filmmaker in me, where I was like, well, Twilight is in real cinema and stuff like that. <laughs> and I kind of judged the movie through that lens as well. The criticisms still stand, but I did enjoy the movie a lot more than I did back then, because I've probably only seen this movie three times. Same. Twice in theaters when it was released, and now. And I've seen clips of it on YouTube like throughout the years, but I've never actually like sat down and rewatched it from beginning to end. And I liked it a lot more. Like, I guess that kind of like, I realized that it's not really pushing the envelope in, in terms of storytelling. Um, it has some, it, you know, it has some similarities to those other films, but going beyond that, I really enjoyed it. Like I thought the artistry was beautiful. I appreciate it a lot more 
not, not not just the CGI, but like the way they film certain things, the designs of the creatures and stuff, um, the kind of pacing, like kind of how the film's broken down, structured, outlined. Or I, I appreciate a lot of that, a lot of that, and it's still exciting, you know. And um, I still don't think Avatar's like his best film. I still think like Terminator Two and Aliens. And you know, possibly Titanic when we rewatch it, but um, I don't think the movie's bad. I enjoyed it a lot more. Yeah, I think I'm out of my douchebag era. <laughs> I and you know, you yeah. know what's there was something that made me appreciate the movie even more. The intro of this podcast, we have our song which we licensed from um, Triune Digital. Yeah, Triune Digital, and <laughs> we we. <laughs> You use one of the songs and then you you put quotes from different movies. And I recognize yeah. most of them, but there was one that I could never really pin down <laughs> and you got it from Avatar. Yeah. And when I heard yeah. it in the movie, I rewinded it. You crossed the line. You crossed the line. That's where he got that line. Yeah. It was one of those quotes that like, I guess it took me a while to get out of my pretentious film era because I was... I mentioned before I was I was talking with my girlfriend about how no one remembers Avatar. Do you remember any lines? And she was like mouthing off lines and stuff. And that was one of them. You cross the line. And then he punches the guy, the, <laughs> the paraplegic that gets out of like a sleep state. He just punches them back to the sleep. <laughs> <laughs> it was it's so funny. And I heard it. I was like, oh, Austin. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so. You know, that, that was a nice little scene. And I, I still enjoyed the craftsmanship, kind of um, how James Cameron directs these scenes and the action mm-hmm. and stuff. And I still think there's a lot of great stuff in there. And you're right. I think um, this does make me more excited for Avatar 2. And it was really interesting rewatching the film because in interviews he's talked about, because he's announced like four more Avatars after the first one, right? Up to Avatar 5. And even he even talked about 6 and 7. And he talked about the pre-production that took place for the for those films, specifically the writing stage. And mm-hmm. he was like, okay, so there's the top-level st- story, right? The story of Jake Sully. Then there's the middle part, which is like imperialism, you know, capitalism, all that stuff. And then he talked about like the core, like what's the story subconsciously about on a dream level, like the like something that we don't really see, but we feel intuitively. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't talk too much about that, at least in the interview that I saw. Having seen that before rewatching the film, I was like trying to grasp what was at that center core. And I think I have an idea, which we could talk about later on. And that has me really excited for the sequel, because I'm like, if he goes in this certain direction, I'm I'm really interested to interested to see what he does. Um because he really said, like, he was like, the writing phase is really important. Why did people gravitate so much to Avatar? And what's the lesson that we can learn from it? And I, mm-hmm. I think that's the best way to approach sequels. And James Cameron has killed it with sequels. Terminator oh, 2, yeah. Aliens. I mean. All, all two of them. But those two are probably the best yeah, sequels. when when people say that oh sequels are are inferior, those are the two you bring up to like say no they're not no they're not and and I I'll say I'll say this I rewatched Terminator before we did our Terminator two episode, and I rewatched the original Terminator and I was like oh this movie's pretty great I don't know if the sequel is actually better and then I watched the second one I was like nope the second one's better like it just yeah it's not to say that the first one's bad no it's the first one's th- very good. Yes. When you make a sequel, you have to justify why you're doing it. And I think 
sometimes it's clear that it's like, oh, you just want more money. You want to continue this IP and, you know, count on the, the fan base of the first one to come and, and pay for tickets to see the continuation of a character they already like. Right. That's like mm-hmm. bare minimum for a sequel. And that's why they get greenlit. But you take kind of a risk when you try to like add to the add to that world and you you come up with new technology to tell the story. That's a that's a risky thing. You know, not yeah. everybody necessarily likes when you add too much to the world. There's something to that. I, I think James Cameron knows when to stop. Right. He, he, he decided to do the sequel for Aliens because he had an idea. He decided to do a sequel to Terminator because he knew where to go. Well, and then Terminator got stolen from him, basically. So. But then they still offered him Terminator 3, but he he couldn't figure out exactly what to do with it. So he just never went back to the franchise, you know, and he would work on it later on in like Dark Fate and stuff. But he would never direct again. But so if that's the guy and I don't I don't know, I th- I'm sure that he was offered the opportunity to work on Alien 3, but he he never went back to the franchise. So I think he definitely seems like the guy to know when to quit. So the fact that he even is talking about Avatar up to f- the fifth one and potentially a sixth, seventh one, like <laughs> it means he still has ideas for this for this place. And even though I yeah. can't see them, he has I, a vision. Yeah. And and that's why and that's why these directors, it's important for them to have a vision. If Peter Jackson had a vision to bring the three Lord of Rings films together and how to build it and look at how that turned out. And so I'm hoping the same can be said for these new Avatar films. I'm hoping in the end we'll have to judge because they might not be good. Maybe. But what what excites me is that this guy, you know, James Cameron, he this is his thing. Mm-hmm. And he's not very limited by the studio telling him, no, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. We, we have a vision for our this corporate um, entity that is Avatar. You know, we have a vision for this franchise and you're doing too much. I don't think that exists for him. Mm-mm. And that's kind of exciting. That's that's why like recently Hideo Kojima is has announced Death Stranding 2. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's it's a video game and it's like a really weird video game, but it's it's his video game and he makes yeah. good video games. So that's kind of exciting that he's I'm, going I'm here. I'm here for auteurs being being having the opportunity to do what they'd like. Yeah, that's it's kind of exciting to, to see that. And if, if it's bad, well, at least he got to do something that he wants. Like it, it was more in line with an artistic vision than okay, we're going to maximize profits and we're going to construct a narrative that will yield us more profits. Exactly. You know, I want them to be good. I'm glad we're on the same page. And and you know what? I'll say this. I rewatching the rewatching this one. I'm excited for for the second one. Um, I'm glad I caught up and rewatched it. So me too. OK, so for those of you who might be um, you might be still like avatar haters out there, this episode uh, we're not going to try to convert you, but we're going to try to get you to see why this movie isn't so bad. Maybe maybe lighten up. <laughs> you can watch the movie on Disney Plus if you have it, but you can rent it on all those other sites. Recommend watching it on like a really nice TV if you have access to one. Um, and if not, if you're like driving or whatever, we usually recap the story so that you can have the context for the conversation we're about to have. So... Avatar takes place in the future where Earth's resources have kind of been depleted. It's 2154. Our main character is Jake Sully. 
he is a disabled former Marine and he's, he's disabled his, he was shot or something and his, he has no mobility over his legs. So he's in a wheelchair in the future and they can, they have the technology to fix him, but he doesn't have the money to, to pay for it. Uh, luckily he has a twin brother and his twin brother is dead. But his twin brother was going to be a part of this Avatar project. And because his DNA is so similar to his brother's, he can fill in on his shoes and he gets to go to this magic, or not magic, but like this new planet rich in resources called Pandora. So he goes into cryosleep for six, five or six years, gets to Pandora, and he meets the, the people in charge there. There's Colonel... Quartich? Quirich? I don't remember it. Papa Dragon. <laughs> uh, he's like the military guy. He's like the, the security detail of the mining operation. He's like a no-nonsense, like, tough military colonel guy. And then there is, like, the money guy. Uh, Selfridge. He's in charge of the corp... He's like the corporate administrator of the mining program. And they're there to mine this thing called uh, an Obtanium, which we don't really know what it does in the film. It's just worth a lot of money. And then we have Dr. Grace Augustine, who's played by Sigourney Weaver, who's a biologist, and she's also the head of the Avatar program. What the Avatar, the scientists people want to do is to make relations with the native population. The Na'vi, who are like these really tall blue people who, you know, they like have arrows, they have like a culture. It's, they're very much like an indigenous, aboriginal, alien race. Grace has been studying them. She's been trying to teach them English, been trying to learn their language, trying to negotiate peaceful relations because the Na'vi live on land that is very valuable to the corporation. So... They want to like, hey, let us mine your stuff. And as the film goes on, we learn that that is not uh, going to happen. Jake meets the people. Nobody really likes him because he's just like a dumb grunt. The Colonel Quirich, Papa Dragon. I'm just going to call him Papa Dragon. <laughs> Papa Dragon likes him because he sees him as like an asset because everybody who... Well, I didn't explain what the Avatar program was. Well, well it, but also Papa Dragon's his code name. Yes, that's his code name, Papa Dragon. He, he, Papa Dragon is, is played by Stephen Lang. Yeah. The Avatar program, what that is, is they're able to like grow like synthetic Navi bodies that is combined with like human DNA and Navi DNA. And you can like upload your consciousness to the bodies and like be one of the aliens and then like you look like them so they'll maybe they'll trust you um but they know who's fake and who's not so it's not like you're trying to trick them mm -hmm. <laughs> you know uh so the avatar program is really expensive so they need this guy to to do it even though he doesn't know anything about the culture he's just a guy who, who know he's a soldier he's a good soldier so he's there to kind of like be the bridge between the the military security side and the biologist side. He's like their security Navi. So there's another guy that's a part of the Avatar program, Norm, who's like who studied the Navi and everything. He's like really excited to go on this mission. He's like, yes, science, Navi. I'm 
down for it. Dedicated his life to do this stuff. Um, there is Trudy, who is played by Michelle Rodriguez. She's a, a pilot, and she's the one that kind of like uh, takes the scientists out on their missions. But she's primarily on the, like, the soldier side until the end. Um, and then for the Na'vi, the alien people, there is Neytiri, who's like the daughter of the chief. Uh, the chief is um, Etukan, and they have like somebody who who understands the will of Ewa, which is like their deity, uh, Moat. And then there's like the, the guy who's going to, the, the, the best warrior of this tribe of Na'vi, uh, Tsute. And he's supposed to be betrothed to Neytiri, who's the daughter of the chief. So those are the characters. Uh, eventually, uh, Jake Sully, he's like on security detail. He's like guarding the scientists, but he's really curious about this world because there's a lot of colors, a lot of plants. He's able to walk around. And so he just kind of explores and he runs into like a, a giant cat panther-like alien monster and he like runs away from it and he, he gets separated from the rest of the group. So on day one, he's like lost and they're, they're like, they kind of assume he's going to die. Um, he survives the night uh, and Neytiri, she sees him walking around and she's about to kill him because he's an invader. But like this jellyfish alien lands on her bow and it's, you, it's implied that the, these jellyfish alien things are like the will of Ewa, the deity. So she's like, oh, the great will does not want me to kill this guy. So she kind of saves him from these other panther things and then she sees that the jellyfish kind of like go to him. So she's like, all right, I'm taking him to, to meet dad. So he meets the dad. He sees all the Navi. They don't trust him, but she tells him that, that the forest selected him. So they're like, all right, we're going to teach you our ways. Uh, and then Jake Sully goes back to base. They're all happy that he's kind of like broken through and reached the Navi people. Uh, the bad guy, Colonel Quirit, Papa Dragon, he's like, I want you to spy on the, the Navi and tell me everything. Tell me everything so that we can uh, prepare our attack against them. And he's like, yes. And then um, the scientists are like trying to teach him the culture, the ways so that he can uh, fit in with, with the Navi people. And as time goes on, the scientists are like, okay, he's a little too loyal to the, the military guys. So we're going to move our base of operations away. And then he gets fully immersed in their culture. He sees that that their like religion isn't just a religion. They're actually connected to all the memories of the ancestors. They're connected to the planet itself. Like when they ride the horses, they like connect with this like tentacle hair thing. <laughs> they're like actually connected to the horse. Like their their minds are almost one. And this connection is kind of throughout the entire planet of Pandora. Like the Navi are part of the planet and connected to everything there. So he's like, wow, I feel like I belong here. And as time goes on, you know, the, the, the company, the corporation, they're like, all right, we need to like mine the inobtainium because that's the whole reason we're here. We're here for the profit from the land. So they start uh, to like um, escalate their mining operations. They start like taking down trees. And Jake is like, no, stop it. And he like stops the, 
the bulldozer from like crushing the land. And he's trying to explain to them like, hey, I was actually here to, to broker like a peace treaty. And then they're like, wait, what? We accepted you. You're one of ours. And then that's when like the the whole military operation starts. They start like shooting missiles and tear gas into the, the big tree that they all live in. And they actually end up like destroying the their home tree. And a bunch of people die, like the chief dies, people who couldn't leave the tree in time all die. And they're like, damn, Jake Sully, you fucked us over. You're we're leaving you here. And uh, because he smashed up the tractor, Jake Sully's kind of like a prisoner because he like betrayed the human race. You crossed a line. And Trudy, she's like, I didn't sign up for, for killing all these aliens. So I'm going to help everybody escape. So she gets all the scientists, puts them in their helicopter thing, their VTOL. And then she flies out to like the, the hanging mountains away from all the, the humans. But in the escape uh, Sigourney Weaver's character is fatally wounded and they try to like connect her body to Awa to like go into her avatar body but she ends up staying in Awa so she she dies and uh, Jake Sully has like this big speech about gathering the people and they're all like okay Jake Sully we'll we'll listen to you because part of like their ritual into becoming a warrior you have to like tame this dragon Right. And there's one dragon thing that nobody fucks with. And he goes and tames that dragon. So he's like proven himself. So they all listen to him and they all gather all the, the other tribes. They all band together. And right before the, the big battle at the end, he makes a prayer to Awa, asking Awa to look inside Grace's memories to see what humans have done to their world and that they, they can't have that happen to Pandora. And then Neytiri is like, Ewa doesn't take sides. We have to fight with what we have. So they start their big battle. It's really cool. But the humans and their technology, they're just too strong. And they start getting overpowered. A lot of our uh, hero characters start dying. Um, but at like, the last second, the, the, all the animals of Pandora like get together and start destroying the humans. Like They're trampling them. It is a really satisfying scene to watch <laughs> um and they they take down all the, the the humans and there's like this really cool fight between papa dragon and Natiri and jake and it ends with the navi winning and all the humans are the bad humans are are sent away and the good humans are allowed to stay and jake's avatar like the device he uses to connect to his avatar body has been disabled so they like hook him up to the tree and um do their chant and then it ends with his human body dying and his consciousness uploaded into his avatar forever the end that's such a weird <laughs> like his subconscious is but that's what happens that's what that is what happens and it's a really like satisfying scene because it it parallels the very beginning when he mm -hmm. like wakes up and you see his human eyes, it's it's pretty cool because it, it it ends with his eyes opening and then Avatar, yeah, and then it hits you with that song that's not quite like 
uh, my heart will go off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know what? I was thinking the exact same thing. Like, they definitely tried, and I was like, ooh, yeah. this just doesn't hit as hard as that song. It, it's, it, it sounds so similar, yes. but it just doesn't hit as hard. So it's like, it reminds me of, like, uh, um, the, the Top Gun song. By Lady Gaga. Yeah, I like the Lady Gaga one. It, it feels like old Top Gun, but I feel like she knocks it out of the park. I didn't feel it with the song in this one. Yeah, you know, it's funny what I was thinking. I was like, this doesn't hit as hard as that Titanic song or <laughs> as uh, the Dracula one. Oh, yeah, the Dracula I, one. I've been re-listening. I've been re-listening to l- listening to that song on, like on repeat. Same. I didn't. That's I so never good. really appreciated it. But once we talked about it in the podcast, I was like, oh, this is a great song. Yeah. I did not listen to I See You on Spotify <laughs> after the movie. No, 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 no. I, I did not either. Um, whoever the artist is, I, uh, I think Alicia I'm sorry. Keys. No way. Was that Alicia Keys? Was it? I'm not too sure. Leona Lewis. I thought it was Alicia uh, Keys for some reason. I'm not too sure why. Like, I like the score of the movie, but just yes. when the score has lyrics, I'm like, hmm. I'll say this is this <laughs> music is very iconic. Very iconic. Like, uh, this is the same guy that did um, Aliens. Oh, yeah, I can Not, definitely feel it a little bit. A li- I, I'll still say Aliens has something special about it, but this is still pretty good. Like, this is, there's a lot of melodies that I can remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, it really, like, when the music swells up, it, it, it just, like, it's really impactful, especially with the images yeah. that you're getting. Oh, yeah. But my favorite one is, like, when, like, shit's hitting the fan, they destroy the tree, and there's a da 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 And it's just, like, this depressing, like, like the 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 fire destruction and this music. Oh yeah, like, so whoa. sad. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's weird because like I remember watching Titanic, and when like that one dude bounces off of the mast of the Titanic, mm-hmm. it, it it makes me like laugh and like damn. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. I was but, wondering where you were going with this. But I, I I don't feel that when I see the Navi getting blown up. You know what's? Like, re- I feel really sad for them. <laughs> you know what's really interesting with Titanic, and I'll, I'll share this story. Um, I'll retell it in Titanic, but I I, re- I rewatched it in 2012 when it was the 3D release, right? Same. And there was someone I was seeing at the time, and we both watched it, and she was crying throughout Titanic. But I mm-hmm. would see some of the. I was like, I mean, I was, I was like, man, this sucks. But like, I would see <laughs> scenes like that where the guy bounces off the ship and he's funny. I would laugh. But we got, we went back into her car. I was like, why are you crying? She's like, because that actually happened. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Like, it, it, for some reason, I didn't contextualize the two. But I don't feel yeah. that I don't feel that way at any point in this movie. Like everything the movie wants me to feel, I feel like they're yeah. like, OK, this is a funny moment. There's a funny bit. This is sad and depressing. Mm-hmm. That's the interesting thing about this. This is. A bunch of blue people. Like, they almost look like cats, almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They look like, like There's cats. something feline about the way they, like, hiss at people when they're mad. And the way yeah. their ears flutter when they're excited. And their tails. Oh, and their tails. It's, it's really good. Like, the animations hold up very well. Oh, yes, yes. 100%. It still looks beautiful up to this day. And I think what's interesting is I felt a lot more for these, not for the Navi than for the people on the Titanic. Now. Right. Now you can you can wonder maybe it's James Cameron's direction that got better, or m- maybe he made the Navi a bit more relatable, or maybe we're just we're just biased. We have a sick sense of humor, or maybe there was something humorous about it. Maybe I, we've changed as people. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's been ten years since I've seen Titanic, so I don't know if I'm going to laugh mm-hmm. again. But that foundation that Cameron built was so strong, and he knew how to present everything. So 
along the way, you know exactly what's funny, what's action packed, what's sad. And, and it's and again, mm-hmm. it's not a complex story. It's not like Parasite or or, Ian, or like another movie where it's like, oh, this is really complicated. I don't know how to feel about this. Like mm. this movie is not that it's makes it very clear who's the good guys, who are the bad guys. I just think it's interesting when we're talking since we're talking about Titanic, like laughing at some of those things. And you're right. I did not laugh um, at anything I wasn't supposed to in this film. I it was very yeah. it was very my feelings were very well directed by James Cameron. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, Which is what he's supposed to do. Yeah, like it's it's kind of like a enjoy the moment kind of thing. It's you're yes. not really thinking about a lot of stuff. It's it's kind of I want to maybe mind numbing, but that usually mind numbing has like negative connotations. I don't I don't associate this movie with negative a negative experience. No, no, no. If that makes sense. It's just like I get what you're saying because there are movies where it is very stupid and dumb, but you're supposed to appreciate that on some level. If that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like there are movies that I love that are dumb and bad, but I still really like them. And you're supposed to be kind of numb to it. And then there are movies where you kind of almost have to just take it at face value, kind of submit yourself to the experience of what it's what's happening, and not demand for more if that makes Mm. sense do you know because i think that's what happened when i watched it the first time i was demanding more i i there was a new world that i wanted more of and i wanted maybe something that challenges me a bit more but i didn't get that but but watching it 13 years later i've kind of just submitted myself to the film just like all right tell me what i'm supposed to feel and i'll go with it yeah, it doesn't try very hard to persuade me because it's so well made. I'm already willing to suspend my disbelief and say, yeah, this isn't a challenging piece of cinema, but it's not supposed to. It's a blockbuster. It is a story that's as old as time, which I still believe mm-hmm. he did on purpose because it's a new IP. This movie was really expensive. He had to justify He had to make up the cost one way or another. And sometimes the hero's journey the basic foundation it works yeah it really works like i i feel like i was really harsh on um sam sam worthington yeah cuz he just he just plays like these <clears throat> really vacant protagonists who don't really have like a strong personality but he's doing that on purpose you know did you know that he's australian i did not know that up until i was researching this movie i thought he was <laughs> english yeah we i thought i thought he was just like american dude who just was like he looks handsome he's got the right build mm-hmm. let's put him in movies yeah but he's like committing himself to like playing this dumb empty-headed himbo he's really good at that <laughs> no 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 but i but i think he does a good job like yeah. I, I really do there are certain scenes where i'm like oh i really feel bad for him and it's really based off the performance like how he's doing it like that scene when he uh when uh papa dragon kind of uses his diaries <laughs> against him and he's like yeah. The Navi aren't going to like give up their tree. And that look, yeah. that expression he has, like he fucked up. I was like, oh man. Like I wanted to give him a hug. And then you have uh, Sigourney Weaver's character put her hand on his shoulder and it's just like, mm-hmm. oh fuck. Yeah. He does a good job. And again, Jake Sully is not, he's not fucking Macbeth. He's not, you know, Luke Skywalker. <laughs> but, but, you know, but he's, but still, he, like for a blockbuster film, I get what he's doing. I sympathize. The only thing 
the only thing that I don't think they pressed enough was his relationship with his brother. Cause it, that, yeah, that, that, that bothered that, me too a little bit. Yeah. Because well. it, it really just seems like the brother thing was put in place to put Jake in that position. Like the yeah. brother has no bearing on the story, which he's not supposed to, but it's like, right. but their relationship is signed up in a few lines where it's like, he was the one that went to Harvard. I was the one that went to the, or something like that. And I'm like, yeah. that's it. There's no, like, you don't feel bad. I mean, there's like a scene where he looks at his brother's dead body and it's like, oh man. But I don't know if they got along. I don't know if they hated each other. I I have no bearing for this relationship. It really and, just feels like we need yeah. this dummy in this suit. This is the only way we could do it. And I'm like, you could have at least maybe had a conversation when Nateria's like, do you have any family? He's like, the only family I ever had was a brother <laughs> or something. Just That scene would not make me more invested in the movie. But it's I would want to see it just to hear hear that voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think the only reason I like before rewatching the film, I forgot that Jake Sully had a brother. I forget almost every time. Yeah, but it is. It is pretty important because it puts someone like him, right? This guy who's he's curious, like he, we're driven by his curiosity because we, the audience, want to see this world of Pandora. You know, we want to watch the rest of the movie. And he's just kind of like our means to that end yeah and if you have somebody with too much of a personality it's more of like a character thing i guess which is a weird thing to say normally i really like strong characters but for this movie it's it's fine it's fine i just i was like either do the brother thing or justify it another way there's a science fiction mm-hmm. film you don't you could you could justify it however you want like you're we're in the 22nd century <laughs> We're on another planet called Pandora where aliens connect to the world planet mother by tying their hair to shit. Like either don't do the brother thing or commit to it or something. Cause I'm like, I remember this movie pretty well. Like the beats and stuff. I was like, that's a pretty big beat that his brother died. And I was like, (laughs) Oh shit. I forgot he had a brother, a twin brother. I think the most of the dialogue in the beginning is kind of rough. Uh, because they like to hammer in that, like, hey, his brother was his twin. By the way, his brother was his twin. Your brother represented a significant investment. We'd like to talk to you about taking over his contract. And since your genome is identical to his, you could step into his shoes. You're Jake, right? Tom's brother. Wow. Looks just like him. Looks like him. Looks like you. This is your avatar now, Jake. I need a researcher, not some jarhead dropout. Well, actually, I thought we got lucky with him. Lucky? Yeah. How is this in any way lucky? Well, lucky your guy had a twin brother, and lucky that brother wasn't some oral hygienist or something. A Marine we can use. He looks like my brother. No, he looks like you. <laughs> yeah, and, and I just thought like it was really interesting because it reminded me of Pacific Rim, where you needed two riders per uh for per each um They needed uh people who are drift compatible to pilot the Jaegers. The Jaegers, yeah. And I always thought that was interesting. And like in the very beginning, you had his brother die, right? And mm-hmm. he had to he had to command the, the Jaeger by himself, which is really, really difficult, but he had to do it. And that kind of grief carried him into the stopping and kind of moving on i was like i always thought that was a really interesting premise and you kind of have something here too where it's like only a person whose dna is compatible almost drift compatible with the avatar can use it and 
it just it reminded me of a story of a film that did that specific aspect a lot better and i was like Mm -hmm. oh it's much more integral to the the story too but yeah exactly like controlling the avatar is just like a means to experience the rest of the movie it's not like super important maybe a little but because of that that whole idea of like you're connected to pandora like by being immersed with the the navi people you understand that connection that you have with the planet you live on so maybe you could extend that to you have a connection to the avatar you pilot but it it doesn't really it doesn't really go there and really that's that's my complaint with the beginning which is oh i forgot the brother was even in a thing it just it really does seem yeah. like we got to get him into the suit. I guarantee you in the sequel, they're not even going to talk about Sam, uh, Jake Sully's brother. Maybe not. But, you know, I mean, this it's, it is a nitpicky thing because I still it, overall it is, enjoyed the film. Yeah, because I, I remember like the second time I watched the movie, I was watching it like kind of like with my arms folded, like because my, my girlfriend loves the movie. So I'm like, all right, I'll watch the movie with you. But like, sadly, I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> There's stuff in the beginning like still still bugs me a little bit like the the brother thing and there's like this this line of dialogue that Jake Sully has when he's going into the Avatar the first time as she she closes the door she says something kind of insulting like just keep your thoughts empty shouldn't be too hard for you and he says kiss the darkest part of my lily white and then the, the door closes and ugh, that is like the worst line in this movie <laughs> but after that. I enjoy the movie 100%. <laughs> There's some very questionable dialogue in the movie. Um, again, not enough to make me hate it. There's some of it's cheesy. Right. Some of it's some of it's really fun cheesy and some of it's just like, ugh, whatever. Yeah. Like you cross the line is a funny line. <laughs> oh yeah. Maybe there's... maybe just cuz it's in our intro, but <laughs> But there's um like there's, there's a so scene... much of what he says that that just like, oh, that's a good line. This is a good villain. No, no, no. Stephen Lang's character uh Courage, Courage, or Papa Dragon, as we're referring to him, he's <laughs> awesome. He's super cheesy, though. Uh, there's that. Very Everything cheesy. out there wants to eat you and use your eyes for juju bees. I was like, <laughs> okay. I saw you were in Venezuela. Some nasty bush. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it's not. You know it. Like that. That's like good cheese. You know the stuff yeah. in the beginning was like. Ugh. At least for me, like kiss the darkest part of my Lily White is is like the worst line of dialogue in the movie. It makes me cringe every time. <laughs> Honestly, I never even noticed it. I was I, I guess I was just kind of excited for that first scene where he gets up, which that scene is like really impactful because you know that he doesn't have legs. So when he stands right. up, he's clearly not listening to anyone. You could feel the elation that he's feeling as he's able to stand again. That's a really cool scene. It that, is really cool. And it, what, what what's also really cool is like that's actually happening. You know, for the actor, he's playing this like larger than life character. And that's not something that we've seen in film up until this point mm-hmm. with the, the, the motion capturing everything. So it, it's really fun to watch from like a meta perspective as well. Yeah. The way this movie was filmed, which we'll get into at the end, towards the end of the episode, but this really did use some pioneering technology because motion capture would, was used beforehand, but the way they used it to elevate the performance um, is incredible. And actually, it's, it highlights the technology that I'm going to talk about later on really was used in that scene in particular um, mm-hmm. to sell it. And I think it works. That's still one of my favorite parts of the film. 
I would I would say when he first gets up, mm-hmm. he's walking around and everyone's like, "Whoa, you need to relax." And it's like you you can't even relate to this because this man lost his legs in a in an accident in a in a army accident. Yeah. You know, um he, he feels a certain way about it. He's lost his brother oh, yeah. and now he he got back the gifts of his legs, which is a beautiful thing to watch. Um Yeah, and I, I think also like this this guy, he does is not really valued outside of of his dna because now he's a disabled soldier like his his previous life was dependent on his physical power and now he's like stuck in the in the wheelchair so he kind of feels like he's worth he's not as worth as much as he used to be Mm -hmm. and now he's kind of like the means to fund this like very expensive project and the scientists don't like him the soldiers are kind of making fun of them, calling him meals on wheels and stuff. So I think in this moment, he feels power that he, he hasn't felt for quite a while. Oh, yeah. I still think it's one of my favorites. It's just very well done. And it's mm-hmm. kind of low key, too. Like, it's not really a scene uh, like that's big action and anything, but it, it, yeah. it builds up like like when he's running for the first time yeah. outside, it's like you've got the music. Oh, it's just, I don't know. <laughs> it's nice. And he, he like runs past the same, like the, the soldiers, some of the soldiers in this movie have like exoskeleton type suits. They're like mechs almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the very beginning, he almost gets run over by one when he's in his wheelchair. And then that the guy has like some comment or whatever. And then when he's controlling his avatar, his Navi body, he runs past the same guy. And this time, the 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 soldier is like, "Whoa, that old gobbles hit me!" <laughs> you know? <laughs> really? I didn't notice yeah. that. I didn't notice that it was yeah. the same guy. I'm assuming it's the same guy because it's the same situation, except now the soldier was the one in danger. <laughs> oh, it's those little, it's those little, de- it's those little, little details, little things, little yeah, things. Yeah, I didn't pick know? up on it, but but it it still adds to it. And mm-hmm. Couple of things in the beginning that you know aren't totally vibing with us, but what I like about it is that this movie is paced so well. It is so well, like it is a finely tuned automobile. It is like <laughs> like every every piston's working the way it's supposed to. Everything's well lubricated and stuff. Because like in screenwriting, you know, like you've got the first act, which is basically setting up the pieces, who are the characters, all of this. By the 25 minute mark, usually that's when you have the inciting incident or like you're moving into the next phase of the story, the second act. And you have the inciting incident. That's kind of like what thrusts the story from the first act to the second act. Mm -hmm. At the 25 minute mark, they're already landing on Pandora where Jake, Sigourney Weaver and the other guy are getting off to do their research. (laughs) That's where they go exploring a little bit, and then we get the chase with the uh, with the like that pan- like panther almost thing. I forget yeah, the like names the- of these car- the the creatures. Yeah, I, I don't know the names either. And it sounds like a T Rex too. Boy, no head being right all the time. It's really cool, and yeah. I I love that efficiency. It's like at the twenty five minute mark, we are moving into the next part of the story. Like we are exploring mm-hmm. Pandora. This place that we've been building up, that people have been giving speeches about, how dangerous it is, how beautiful it is. We are here, 25 minutes in. By that point, we have gone through all the characters. We know all of our players. We know the settings. We know the stakes. We know what we're there to do. 
why he's there, why he's the chosen one. Like it, it all works. And it's, it's just like clockwork efficiency. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yes, that's why I like James Cameron. Cause he's no fuss. He doesn't waste <laughs> your time. He doesn't, he, everything has a purpose. He knows how to film things. He, he doesn't overdo it. Some people will overdo it by adding scenes that aren't necessary. They'll in not just the structure of it, but the way he films it too. Like, Yes. When when action scenes come up, everything is efficiently used. You you're always seeing you're always getting the best angle at the right time. Some other directors will cut too soon, cut too fast, you'll get disoriented. It's like you're not seeing you don't have the best seats in the house. James Cameron's like, no, you you got the best seat in the house, and we're moving at the pace we're supposed to in order to keep your attention. Because this is a long right. movie, man. It's two hours it, forty-two minutes. It is a long movie. So like I think a really good example of this is when they land for the first time and they're on Pandora doing research. Now, the research they're doing is for like a, a planet that doesn't exist. It's a lot of like sci-fi speak. And, you know, if you get too much of it, it's kind of like, well, none of this really matters. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you hear like one line of dialogue about it. And then <laughs> Jake's always like, I'm bored. And he walks away. Mm-hmm. And then... <laughs> He sees these plants that when he touches them, they shrink. And he's like, oh, this is cool. And he keeps touching them and touching them. And then all of a sudden, all of them shrink. And then when the last one does, it reveals a dinosaur. And the camera kind of like focuses in on it. That There was no plants in when they shot this movie. Mm-hmm. There was no forest. There was no dinosaur back there. That was all done with the special effects. Mm-hmm. You know. Now you're like, okay, that's dangerous. And then... He has to like stand his ground or whatever, and he like mm-hmm. scares it away. And then you see behind him the thing that's like actually dangerous. And like just the way that it's filmed, it lets you know it's easy to watch and understand. You don't need to understand the, the language uh, to to know what's happening in the film and how you should feel. It's it's a it's a thing that I I think a lot of people take for granted when watching movies. That you, scene is incredible. You know, you're transitioning from the helicopter shots, the wide shots of Pandora, and then the, the helicopter, pseudo-science helicopter lands. You start going for like a more shaky camera style. And I think that mm-hmm. shakiness really grounds it even more because they're moving yeah. like because the, the, the characters, the camera's filming these characters walking through this CGI jungle. This isn't filmed like Predator. Predator, you had like. Like cameras on sticks, you had dollies, you had all this. No, this is like a documentary crew in the Amazon forest, and James Cameron is filming it like that. So it feels even more real and grounded. Not not necessarily real, but it feels like everything has weight. I was going to say, like what you mentioned before, like in Predator, they actually had a film in the jungle, and sometimes the the camera angles were limited by what you can actually yes. where you can actually put the camera. Mm-hmm. In in Avatar, there is no where to put the camera because it's a virtual camera it can go anywhere so you can get these impossible shots that you could never do before but that's what i like the restraint and that's and that goes back to appreciating how james cameron films this stuff because it feels like you're getting the right angle at the right time that you're seeing everything from the best angle but he doesn't Mm -hmm. overdo it he's like in this segment, we're going to be holding the camera on our shoulder, right? And we're going to be walking. There's going to be a little bit of a, wib- a wobbling. Mm-hmm. Not too much. A tasteful wobble. A tasteful wobble, yeah. <laughs> but but, yeah, but it, it is it, – well, that's actually a good way of putting it. It's a tasteful wobble. It's not enough to, like, get you disoriented or to make people like my dad vomit because he's very <laughs> motion – like, he gets very motion sick. 
Uh-huh. But it's enough to make everything feel real, have some weight to it. Yeah. Uh, but he knows how to pick the right angles. Whereas some other people will like create like these, and you've seen it before in other films, well, they have like the CGI camera moving through the jungle easily, like going at 70 miles per hour, easy in and out. Like it'll, like you'll have these giant crane shots that will hover over the forest and in between the branches and stuff like that. That's neat and all. That looks cool. But it doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel grounded. And right. I think, and that's the restraint that I'm talking about. James Cameron could have done that because he created this world along with all the designers and artists. And he could have mm-hmm. said, shit, I'll make Pandora feel like the, like a fucking amusement park where we got the camera moving through all these branches just so you could see everything. And he's like, no, the characters aren't seeing Pandora like that. So we're gonna, I'm going to put yes. the audience with them. That's a really good point because I think that's like one of the best things about the movie is how successful it is in putting you on Pandora and making you feel like you're on that planet. And that's super important because it's not real. You know, some of the the, the sets, I mean, that's an obvious statement, but it's fucking true. This is not real. This isn't Harry Potter or Star Wars where you have a set and the lights bouncing. No. You know, you're basically making an animated film and you put with real actors. Even though it's like completely like computer generated, it still feels more real than, than some movies coming out now. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. A hundred percent. This is this is all blue cats, fake force and everything. But it's filmed a lot more realistic than most films coming out now. It has a greater sense of like density and weight, buoyancy. It's It's weird. It is really weird that I'm even using those kind of words for a film <laughs> like this. But that's the direction that the that they went in. And that's why with the camera having that tasteful wobble, and not just in that scene, but throughout the film, it grounds it. It's little things like that that make you feel like, oh, shit, this feels very strange, you know? Uh, and I'm not saying filming it in a different way would have been bad. I just think that way that they chose to film it immerse us even more and i'm not, he still has those crane shots like he'll have yeah. he'll still have like those jib crane shots that'll go over this go over he still has those sweeping so- shots but he knows when to implement them you can see like there's as i mentioned in the story there's a part where they go up to like these these hanging mountains they're i don't know how they're they're suspended in the oh, air no, the, 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 the floating mountains the floating mountains they're like these mountains that are like in the sky i don't know how they're floating i don't know the science but <laughs> it's it's there and it interferes with like the humans technology their instruments they're they're like missile tracking and all that shit um but when you we when we see them they look really good yeah. they, they look amazing and there's a part as part of like his rituals to like tame these dragons uh and then once you bond with one you're bonded with that one for life or whatever and you, he has to like fly it he has to like think about how he's flying that whole that whole sequence when he's actually flying through those mountains it feels like we're we're with him and every time every time i see this scene i'm like damn is there an avatar game i want to do this i, w- I want to fly these dragons i don't <laughs> feel that as strongly when i'm seeing other films where people are doing like these impossible things i'm like yeah. Whoa, that looks cool. But here I'm like, I want to do that. <laughs> you know? You know, it's interesting you say that because I, I think some people relate to that when they're watching Spider-Man films, right? I think mm-hmm. for the longest time people are like, I want to swing like Spider-Man, you know? And then you have video games kind of implement that. 
But Spider-Man is a whole different ballgame because you understand New York, you understand the webbing mechanics, the swinging. You, you kind of you can put it in your head. You know, obviously, I've never swung between 70, 80, 100 foot tall buildings, but I kind of understand. But I, I have swung before, like on a on a on a jungle gym at the park. So kind of mm-hmm. I understand the physics of it just a little bit. Obviously, we don't know what any of this would feel like in Avatar, you know, like what writing this creature would feel like. But he does a good job of, like, making you feel what it would theoretically be like, right? How chaotic it would be. (laughs) Uh, And then there's that, like, the element of danger that happens as there... Because it's like a... There's like a sequence in the movie where, like, he's just doing all the all the things of the Navi and he's like becoming one with their, their culture and everything. It's, it's a really cool montage. But then when he's flying with Neytiri, there's like this big dragon, the Toromakto. I'm on the avatar wiki trying to figure yeah. out. <laughs> so they the Toromakto have... is the, is the individual, is the Navi individual who's able to control this dragon. Yeah. So like, there's like a big one that means like last shadow because it's like an apex predator, right? And there's a sequence where they're being chased by it, and then when they like hide away in the in the trees, like you, it's a really exciting scene. <clears throat> like you know that they're not going to get killed by this thing, right? It's like an hour and a half into the movie, they're not going to die, <laughs> but, but it's it's a really exciting scene. Um, it sets up something that happens later on because it's like, okay, that one was big. Why was it so big? What's special about it? And then you get the yeah. backstory, and then. When he's disgraced from the Navi people, he's he knows if I tame that thing, they will they'll respect me again. Yeah. It's just like really efficient storytelling because like well, you want you want to tell a story, but you also want excitement and and stuff in the movie. No, hundred percent, absolutely, yeah. And I, I, I mean, talking about efficiency, this is a very efficient film. I mean, this we talk about it, we've brought it up before, but setup and payoff. This thing sets up. And it pays off everything like so much. It, it's so much so that like you're, you're probably like, well, did we need that scene? It's like, yeah, you kind of do. Because towards the end, like you've got the creature that he interacts with in the very beginning when they first land on Pandora. You've got like that um, triceratops thing. Yeah, like the rhinoceros, yeah, the like hammerhead the ri- rhinoceros thing. <laughs> exactly. And then you've got the panther dragon thing, right? Yeah. Uh, they both are instrumental in the final battle. You've yeah. got the giant dragon that that Jake is able to to um, to 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 uh, command during the final fight, which is super instrumental. It's like all the creatures that we've seen throughout the film come into play at the very end, mm-hmm. right? And so it's a subtle, it's a subtle little thing. Yeah, and there's there's like a lot. Like the planet is huge, so there's probably species we haven't seen, right? But like why waste time showing us all these creatures that don't come back in in some way so yeah it's it's efficiency and we we know those things are indestructible you can't shoot them because when he tried when he asked grace do i shoot this thing she's like no your weapons will be useless against it you'll piss it off yeah (laughs) and then we know that that panther thing is really dangerous because grace was (laughs) like run <laughs> like don't even fight, just run. So when it comes back, it's like hell yeah, she's getting the the badass like, mount now. Because uh, Neytiri, during the final battle, you see that creature again, and it kind of bows to Neytiri, and she's able to connect with it with her uh, tendril. What do they call it? There's a name for it. Um, the halo. The halo, Jake. No, that's the 
so, so Halo is the bond. That's like the the act of of bonding. Their like tail thing that they that has like the the organic tissue at the end that they're able to like, connect with the animals and also to each other when they're having sex. Um, yeah, it's that that I don't know what that tendril thing is, but it's really interesting. It is interesting. Like we like you understand we understand it. It's just I don't know the terminology. You know, yeah. there's not like nine Avatar movies where like we have to learn the technology, otherwise we'll be confused. You know? No, <laughs> and that's yet, the thing anyway. too. They, they they don't waste too much time explaining it. Like they explain what you need to know, but you get it mm-hmm. on an intuitive level. Oh, this is the yeah. way. It's like a USB thing. <laughs> Guy, I mean, am I wrong? <laughs> it's kind of like a USB you thing. Get, you get dismounted. It's like, <laughs> yeah, did not eject properly. <laughs> But it's there is that like intuitiveness to it. So he's like, look, we don't need to explain it. I'm sure there's a wiki that could explain the science of it. Yeah, sure. But the the bond that they make, that's like the the thing that makes Pandora so special. It's the thing that doesn't have like a monetary value for the humans to exploit. Mm-hmm. What they want is the inobtainium. And I'll say this: this movie makes you hate humans. It really does. On principle, what they're doing is fucked up. They're going to someone's neighborhood and saying, this shit's ours. We want it. It's really fucked up. <laughs> and the way, the, the things that they do from there, it's just like, oh, you're even more cruel than I thought. Yeah. Obviously, it's like the play on like Native Americans and like the indigenous and kind of what colonizers did and stuff. It's just funny because people are still willing to like celebrate like Columbus Day and stuff. Even though they'll watch Avatars like, that's really messed up what the humans did. Huh. I wish you could apply that logic to real world. Yeah, it that's something that like, yeah, the story is very familiar because history keeps repeating itself. Yes. You know, like the, the colonial powers don't stop. We, no, we, no, no, they don't. People who, who have and want something from somebody else, they will continue to exploit them. And that yes. happens today. That was my biggest criticism of the film. What's been there, done that, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it keeps happening. You know, and that's why this is a this this is why this story has been told thousands of times. You know, Fern Gully, mm-hmm. Dance with Wolves, Pocahontas. Yet we don't get the fucking lesson. We don't understand it. We don't understand. Uh, people are unwilling to understand um, the persecution that indigenous people went through. There's some stuff too that they. It's not really implied, but they, they talk about how Grace had a school to teach mm-hmm. English to everybody. And it kind of reminds me of how there used to be schools to like convert indigenous people to um, Christianity. Christianity. Mm -hmm. I think specifically in Canada, there was like this huge thing about how they uncovered a bunch of bodies of of native children who didn't assimilate. I know that there will be movies about this coming out soon, but it's, it's, it goes deep. I think it's a lot deeper than we think. Like it is kind of like simple, but some of the language that they use and some of the plot points are very specific. Like, um, for example, when Colonel Critch is kind of mobilizing his troops, there's a phrase that he uses. Jake, it's crazy here. It's full mobilization. They're rigging the shuttle as a bomber. They've got these huge pallets of mine explosives. It's for some kind of shock and awe campaign. Which is very similar to some language from George W. Bush during the invasion of Iraq. Man, we forget how big the Iraq war was. Like, I think maybe because we were 
or as a kid, I wasn't paying attention to it. I was more paying attention to modern warfare and Call of Duty and stuff. But I think it's you, you, you get you get to see the influences that the Iraq War had in media. Mm-hmm. Um, even in Call of Duty, right? There's a mission called Shock and Awe. And that's one of the problems I have with with Call of Duty is because it it takes the 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 perspective of the the uh, the imperialistic force, but never questions its its morality. You know, we we're 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 playing Jake Sully, but if he never learned from the Navi, and that's that's where Avatar succeeds. You know, you spend time with the Navi, and you really do start to hate the character, the the villains in the movie. And you're like. Well, this is just wrong on every level. I can't. I can't imagine. I haven't looked into it, but I'd be really curious to see if there's like a group of Avatar fans that are like, no, the humans were in the right all along. I found somebody who, because uh, I was like looking at reviews from critics and stuff, and there was one review that kind of like caught my attention. The review is called "Cowboys versus Indians in Space," and so already you can tell where this guy's going to come from, mm-hmm. right? And he talks about, he denounces, okay, so he denounces the film's predictability, and he also says it's confusing. He doesn't understand the significance of the name Avatar, and he says that he would have rather prefer Titanic 2, the 3D doesn't add anything, and he he thought the story was really simple and how like all the white people were evil and all the blue people were, were good. And then I was like, who is this guy? And the guy used to be a mayor. His name is Ed Koch. He used to be a mayor of New York City. Uh, also describes himself as a liberal with sanity. Huge supporter of Israel and of George W. Bush in 2004. Okay, that <laughs> that explains a lot. It just it is it adds so much. He he doesn't like it because he's one of the benefactors of most of us in the states and are benefactors of of all this the the military might from the United States. You mm-hmm. know. We're, we we get to sleep comfortably at home because we make life, our country makes life difficult for so many people around the world. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that might contribute to its success uh, on a global scale because everybody else relates more to the Navi than Jake Sully's people, you know? Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm, I'm just thinking about what you just said. It is tough to acknowledge something like that right because again we don't want we don't want our life to change uh because we have it really good but then you watch something like avatar and it does make us a little bit of hypocritical because we we see this and it's like oh well that's really fucked up with what um what we did to the navi but on the other hand it's like you know why were they up there for unattained i mean they don't talk about in the film but i mean make diamonds out of it you know maybe maybe a fuel source maybe fuel it's a source. kind of oil maybe it's a good conductor to make to further industrialize our world i it's mm-hmm. it goes it's on and on also i've i've become more like conscientious of like environmental issues too mm-hmm. uh and maybe i wasn't so much when i was younger because it's like i don't care i don't mm-hmm. care bugs are gross i don't want to be outside yeah and, you know to to some extent, I still hate mosquitoes, but like my girlfriend's really into plants and stuff, and I've been having a lot of plants around here. It's been nice. I, I have three pets, and I don't know. It just it's like it's making me eat want to eat less and less meat. Mm-hmm. You know, the the more I'm I'm living like this, and I think even for for the set of Avatar, 
there oh, was he only... made it a vegan he made it a vegan set yeah yeah which i'm sure he did, he implemented for the second one as well most likely it, yeah it is just something interesting that going back you you appreciate more and it, it's not something that i was thinking about back then i mean you know about you knew about global warming and you're like yeah it's bad for the earth and stuff but it really wasn't a it wasn't something that I actively wanted to think about. I was just more interested in other stuff. I was in high school when this came out. My sophomore year, I think. Mm-hmm. I was way more like on The Dark Knight and Transformers and Star Trek, yeah. you know, and doing high school stuff. But watching this kind of later on and seeing where we're headed and kind of learn, trying to be a bit more informed about the world. It's like, oh, this is, oh, this is depressing. It is depressing. And yeah. some, I don't I guess I'll bring it up now. There were a lot of people who walked out of Avatar loving the movie, but felt really depressed after mm. the movie. Have you heard about this? I knew there was like a, like a, it was like a seasonal depression that was caused by Avatar or something. I don't know too much about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So there were a bunch of articles about it. Like there's CNN has one, um, audience experience Avatar blues. <laughs> and this is this is like in January of 2010. And they talk about all these fan sites. One one forum had like a thousand posts talking about how fans are trying to cope with the depression after watching the movie. Because when you're watching this movie, you're on this like beautiful paradise. You see these human invaders try to destroy it for for money. Really, they're destroying this beautiful world. There's there's a scene where after they destroy home tree and Jake Sully wakes up, it's like covered in ash. Yeah. It just looks like this vibrant world is now like cold and gray. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, the Navi, they get together, the the animals of, of Pandora get together and we over, they overthrow the, the invaders. Right. And he gets to wake up and he's in this like bioluminescent forest and with, all these colors and all this green and then the movie ends and we leave the theater and like we go through our parking lot that used to be you know of probably a forest somewhere you know we get in our cars and drive home we don't see we're not in pandora anymore that mm-hmm. paradise is just in the movie so a lot of people were depressed about this they they got really upset with how we've destroyed the the planet and they want to be back in that world and there's this one kid who was uh, studying like video game development who he found comfort in making friends with all the other people that felt the same which is a nice thing you know like he brought all these people kind of together Mm -hmm. there's a lot of avatar fans out there that are like it's given them new it's it's made new relationships. It's made a new new bonds, which is a really cool thing, I think. And it's like the the bright side of like the depressing reality that we live in. You know, like we can make connections with with real people and make lives better for them. It's funny that it's like, oh, we could connect with how sad we are. And it's like <laughs> I think that's kind of funny, but it's also like mm-hmm. nice that it's like, oh, well, you're able to you're able to have relatable feelings. Um, it's a win lose, I guess. Yeah. Well, like by n- ignoring the problem, we're not we're gonna lose in the long run. But I think if you have you know like minded people get together and like make small changes around your life, maybe you'll you'll feel better about it. Mm-hmm. You know, 
Uh, I have a quote from him saying, after after discussing the forums, <laughs> after discussing on the forums for a while now, my depression is beginning to fade away. Having taken part in so many discussions concerning all of this really, really helped me. Before, I had lost the reason to keep on living, but now it feels like these feelings are gradually being replaced by others. Well, shit, that's good. It's pretty good, you know? It's it's a nice feeling, and I'm, I'd imagine some people, after watching the movie, will look at nature in a different way, which is a good thing, I think. No, 100%. And... and I- I'd be curious to think how the ne- the next one's going to be received, you know, because we've only gone down further down this route, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, global warming is a bigger topic, right? You you've got like this whole woke thing, the woke and culture, and the like a a really terrible reaction to people trying to be more accommodating of other cultures and other people. It, it does seem to be like this. There seems to be a greater a greater group of people trying to learn, trying to figure out how their actions, the consequences to their actions, but then you also have a group of people that are against it. I'd be curious to see how Avatar 2 is going to be received by both. And if this movie is going to cause that like seasonal Avatar depression again that like <laughs> this person was talking about. Because it just seems like it's more, it, it's like more of what got what we got from the first one. Like there are Marines that are killing blue people, blue aliens, and yeah. they're doing it with water now. Like in the first movie, there was like he has to go and reach the other tribes, right? Mm-hmm. But it it seems like there's like another water tribe in Avatar Two, yeah, and they're like slightly different blue <laughs> than him, yeah. And the the Amatakan, yeah. So I'm I'm curious to see what this second one's gonna do with that and how yeah. it's gonna be received. I do remember seeing some people saying like, "Oh, we're depressed because we can't be in Pandora," and it's I. I guess it never affected me because I was like, it's it's fake. Because number one, I didn't love the movie as much. I was like, well, it's fake. Yeah. It's not real. Like, it's not. Yeah. Hey, maybe it may, maybe it will happen this time. I felt a little bit of it after uh, watching it again. Because I was like, damn, it's sad that the colonizers don't lose in real life, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, not really. No, no, no. No, I. Uh... It's. I feel like we're feeling it right now. The Avatar Blues. Well, it's a lot to think about. It's a lot of movie. It's two hours and forty-two yeah. minutes, and it's funny too because thinking about it, like, yeah, this movie doesn't have any have much to have much to say or anything. But here we are, we're talking about it, and it still holds up. Like, I I think the movie holds up thirteen years or twelve, mm. thirteen years after it came out. Um, especially from the visual effects department, I think it still looks good. Now, granted, does it look as good on my TV as it would like on a theater? No. But it still looks good. Like there was no moment where I was like, oh, that looks bad. That looks fake. Whereas yeah. I feel like I've had to do that with some movies that came out after this. Like there's some movies yeah. where the CGI is a bit shoddy and with reason because, you know, VFX artists are being like are being pushed further than they ever have before. Companies are going right. out of business. The work, the amount of work is increasing. They, the time to work on these projects is getting shorter. So that it's not not to say that the talent isn't there, just the talent's being pushed more than it ever has before. But in two thousand nine, I mean, Weta worked on this movie, which they also worked on Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. and the technology still holds up really well. Like I, I was looking at this, I'm like, yeah, this it feels grounded, it looks real. It's I, there were no moments where I was like, oh, that looks fake, that looks bad. I'm sure, like 
if you're like nitpicking, maybe. Yeah, there's like little things like like the first time you see um, Sigourney Weaver's avatar, like something about her smile looks like a little uncanny valley. Mm-hmm. Right. But then there's other moments where like you see Neytiri cry and it's like that she looks like a real thing, real living creature crying. Mm-hmm. And w- after they've like gotten away from like this, the scary dragon thing. And they're kind of like laughing about how dangerous that they were almost eaten. It feels like, yeah, that's how you would react to almost being eaten. You know, the bioluminescent forest that they're in really makes this movie look really good. And the characters feel very lifelike. And it's just, it's really good at putting you in the world. It's hard to, to talk about. It's something that you have to like experience. I've been to the Descanso Gardens in, in L.A. Um, I forget where they where exactly in L.A. it is, but it's like it's a, a botanical garden that is lit at night during the holidays. Like there's a, a part where these like platforms that you stand on, like when you touch them, they change color and the the trees and stuff are lit in a specific way and it kind of changes colors as you progress through the garden and everything. And I'm like, this is like Pandora right now at night. It's, it's a experience. I've only been to it once, but I never forget it. There is something about like just the, 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 the biology in this film. That's really beautiful. Like the, like the, the tree of souls, right? The way it mm-hmm. looks, the light that it emits, the creatures, like the light that, comes from them and stuff. I, I That was something that I wanted to talk about was the, the actual design. Because we talked about the CGI and how I think it holds up really well. You mentioned a few things, but I feel like those those would be nitpicks in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the design of the film is really well done. It feels consistent. It feels like you had artists really think about the biology of these things. Like the plants... Because you have a ton of plants that are in this movie. That's something that you don't think about. But there's a lot of trees. There's a lot of types of trees and plants in our real life. Yes, this mm-hmm. is an obvious thing. We know this. But you don't really register that. If you're making, if, you know, I'm James Cameron and I have to assemble a team, you have to break all this down. Okay, what what kind of trees are there? What kind of plants? All of that's consistent in the film. Like, it looks good all around. It all fits in well. As a design, you could create the best-looking creature or the best-looking plant. But the goal isn't to create one of those. You need to create an entire book mm-hmm. of what the ecology is going to look like. All the different types of trees. All the different types of creatures. And they all have to work with each other. They all have to work standing next to each other. If that makes sense. It's not something we think about, but when you're drawing it or putting it all together, it's kind of difficult because it has to make sense to us. And obviously they use some real world designs, like some real world inspirations, but they had to make it feel avatar. And there was no point where I was like, oh, this design looks fake. This design looks false. Or that took me out of the experience. Like the Navi have a specific design the, the Pandora has a specific design that all works together. And the army, the humans, like their technology, everything feels like big, bulky from the uh, from the um, mechs that they use to like mm-hmm. the guns to the aircrafts. 
um, like everything fits in really well and it's designed to still be its own thing. Like for example, when Papa Dragon, when they're <laughs> escaping from the base, right? And Papa Dragon mm-hmm. sees them and he's like masks on and he breaks that door. Yeah. And like, he's shooting the gun, but mm-hmm. then he runs out of ammo. So he pulls out like his, like what feels like a bolt action revolver kind of thing. It has a really interesting design. Yeah. Like, it looks weird, but it fits in with everything. Like, it's on brand with what we've seen so far. Yeah. And I don't think we ever really pay attention to that. Like, it's... It, for, it's something for, that you, you take for granted uh, watching a movie. But, like, when you really, really, like, when you see the movie, you, <laughs> you, you see all that stuff. Yeah. Well, it, it all feels connected. Like, and these designers don't get much credit, right? It's... Think about it like this. Think about the original Tim Burton Batman films. They have their own distinct style. That Mm -hmm. Gotham is very specific to Tim Burton. Now, Avatar, to a certain extent, has that. Granted, it's a a lot more green. But it's that same principle. But you're talking about creature designs. You're talking about military design. You're talking about the tribe design, like the indigenous lifestyle. And all of that has to go really well. Because if you don't, Audiences are going to feel it. It's like, that's fake. That's not real. That feels weird. Something's wrong there. Mm-hmm. But we don't ever think about that. That's why art direction, set decorators, art direction is really important because they have to keep the meth. They have to keep the world feeling consistent. And we don't ever give them credit. And I, there was a moment where I was like, these animals, these creatures are designed beautifully. Like they are distinctly avatar. They are distinctly from Pandora. Mm-hmm. So much so that I'm sure that if you took the the creature from this movie and you showed random people, they'd be like, oh, I think that's from uh, Ap- Avatar, right? That's from Pandora. Maybe. I don't know. Because there's there's like the, the running myth that nobody remembers Avatar. Well, that that's the thing, right? People are like, oh, nobody cares about Avatar. Nobody cares about a sequel. I've, I've been hearing that a lot, especially with mm-hmm. the second one coming up. But I, but I think that's a lie. I think it's like, yeah. no, I think people... <laughs> still remember this movie pretty well and i i still think if it was designed so well all around on every front that if you if you showed a random person like maybe a snippet or something they'd be like oh that's avatar that's pandora yeah i think i think we remember more than you remember more about this movie than you think you do like the general you like not not you specifically but Uh, no no no. most people like listening to this if you've seen this movie i feel like you'd probably remember a bit more than you than than you think now if you've never seen the movie then it's like well obviously yeah or you could lie and say i don't remember that (laughs) (laughs) the the design is really good it's really good the there's like one shot that just rings uh like when when the battle starts like and you see the they're like aircrafts like coming over they're coming into the the floating mountains that just looks so good it gets me excited um and i was i was curious and i wanted to watch that scene in endgame when you because you you know when you have like these big final battles they all kind of have like the same beats you know you have like the bad guys coming in the good guys are getting ready right now they're fighting okay the good guys they're they're doing work they're getting some kills they're they're doing their mission and uh uh-oh the bad guys are winning now Uh uh-oh looks like the bad guys are gonna win and then and the 11th hour something comes and saves them all Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and 
it's it happens in every single final battle movie you know but people yeah. like to complain about avatar being predictable okay sure but i watched it in endgame and so much of it is like oh i this character from this movie is coming in this character from this movie is doing something it doesn't get me as hyped anymore after <laughs> after like you know watching all the movies for 10 years going back and watching this scene doesn't elicit the same feeling as it did the first time I watched the movie. When I watch it in Avatar, I feel all the same things I'm supposed to feel. I feel the exact same way. And I do think that it, I think that has something to do with how Marvel, the context around those fight scenes in Marvel versus in Avatar. Because in Avatar, it's very self-contained. Everything that we need to know about the story is in here. But with Avengers and the, some of those Marvel films, it's kind of like what the, the larger context, the larger tapestry that everything's interconnected and stuff. Um, we've never made an episode specifically talking about Marvel, the MCU. But I think one of the biggest things about those Marvel films is that they work best when you see them as a whole, like in the larger mm-hmm. tapestry of this interconnected story. But when you look at the individual ones... It doesn't hold up as well. Now, you have certain ones that do. Like, the, I, I rewatched the original Iron Man, and that's a fantastic film. But I think for most of them, the individual stories are okay. They kind of they rely on just setting up this this particular story to get you involved for the, for the greater thing. I think that's why a lot of the criticism with Faith 4 has been, well, nobody really knows what we're headed. Nobody knows what the big bad is. Nobody really knows what, what direction the entire MCU is in. And it's like, if the individual movies were good, it wouldn't matter. That's the thing with Avatar. We didn't know, with this original Avatar, we didn't know where things were headed. We just knew that we were headed into the final battle. And James Cameron was setting up that scene where it was dramatic where we knew both sides. We knew the lead antagonist and protagonist and what what they had invested in the fight. We knew the stakes. We knew the setting. It was all there. And James Cameron did the work to emotionally get us involved into it. So when when Papa Dragon gets the upper hand, we're like, fuck that guy. So when Awa does send in the creatures to help in the final battle. It's so good. It's so good, dude. And I, you see movies do this, like, all the time. Like, every big blockbuster does this exact same thing. It's also Lord of the Rings. Because we watched that recently, yeah. the, the, the Two Towers. Helm, Helm's Deep, yes. Helm's Deep. And it's, the, yeah. and it's the same beats. Oh, the good guys are winning. They're getting some licks in. But then the bad guys, the bad guys destroy the, the, the outer <laughs> fortress. So now there's mm-hmm. a giant hole. And they're they're mm-hmm. cornered, but they're gonna make their final stand, and it might be their final sacrifice. But then, uh, I was gonna say Dumbledore. <laughs> um, uh, what's his um, Gandalf? Gandalf. Sorry, I just, just forget. <laughs> okay. There's so many references. But Gandalf yeah. comes in and he saves the day. I mean, it's the same thing. And and Avengers, the, the Avengers films do that too. Like you've got that battle in Infinity War, where the final battle is like. Or the the saving grace is like Thor coming in, yeah. right? And great that's still entrance. A, that's still a great entrance. But I think it's funny when we talk about is Marvel cinema or not. I like it all either way. But there is something to like when you compare like the Battle of Helm's Deep to like or like the final battle in Avatar versus like the final battle in the, the Avengers film. Avengers film. It does feel like there's a difference in there that the reliance is on different things. 
And yeah. I mean, this is a discussion for a longer discussion. Yes. That everybody longer. has an opinion about. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, I, I really liked I really liked Endgame, but I. Th- oh, yeah. Yeah. But maybe like as a standalone movie, I did not expect to, to like Avatar more. <laughs> no, I, I mean, <sighs> at least like in terms of the final battle, I don't even know, like separately, like judging them specifically Avengers Endgame versus Avatar, which which do I like more? I don't know. It just it feels like it's it's not even fair to compare the two. But for that scene, rewatching them both, I felt the things more in, in Avatar than I did in Endgame. I was surprised by how like invested I was in that final fight. And it kind of, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not a long fight either, but it, it's very well done. And like it gets to the point where it's like a one on one fight. It's like a yes. fist fight between between Papa Dragon and Jake. And then the comes in like it. And man, Papa Dragon's a badass villain. Like he, he is. He's crazy. Like he holds his breath when he needs to because when his oxygen's running low, he puts on the mask. He's shit talking. He's smart though. He's like, I need to destroy Jake's human body in order to, to disable the well, in order to kill him. The way he shanks the dog. Oh, just fucking and it's like, oh damn, this dude's vicious. He's a living weapon. Basically, yes, he's a living weapon. And you get that from the very beginning. Well, when they first land on Pandora, they tell you. Remember, people, you lose that mask, you're unconscious in 20 seconds. You're dead in four minutes. Let nobody be dead today. Looks very bad on my report. And when the scientists and everybody makes their initial escape towards like the the beginning of the third act, he just walks out. No mask on because there's no time for the mask. He has to shoot them. Holding his breath. <laughs> and then during the final battle when they're they're like losing and everything he sees jake about to like destroy his ship so he forces the pilot to move he controls the guy's joystick makes makes the the aircraft tilt to the left to to throw jake off and then he immediately goes into like the hatch that opens up holds his breath doesn't take a mask he holds his he takes a breath from the dead pilot and then goes out and starts shooting his gun. Ah, they, he's such a great villain because he doesn't care about the thing that's most important to the, the heroes. He kind of reminds me of the the bad guy in um, Pan's Labyrinth. <gasps> oh, that's a good connection. The, the military guy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh, he's just, yeah. He's such a perfect, perfect antagonist to the, the message of the film and like the story of the main character, you know, they're all about like connecting and making bonds with life. But this guy, he wants to kill. <laughs> He's just waiting for the OK to pull the trigger. He's all about orders and ruthless efficiency. When you have a when you have a great villain that carries a lot of the weight mm-hmm. in terms of the dr- dramatic element of the story. Right. And. Combine that with great direction, great payoff, great set, great setup and payoff, great music, great production design, all all these things expertly woven together, and you've got a badass movie. Um, that that is that is great. I I still think it's I think it's good. It's it's um so good. You know um, that 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 scene where he drops out of the burning plane, he's like on fire, but like he has to get his suit on. Oh first. yeah, yeah, and then he just taps it off. Yeah, <laughs> drops down. Like if he would have been just a little bit slower, he'd be dead. 
but this guy is very hard to kill. Very. And I think he's coming out in the sequel. Normally, it's kind of annoying when people come back from the dead. I don't care. I'll, I'm here for it. <laughs> well, we'll see how he comes back, because I know Sigourney yeah. Weaver's coming back as like a child. Mm-hmm. Hey, man, we'll see. You know, I, I'm not too sure, but this movie made me more confident on the second one. And I'm um, so excited to see the second yeah. one. Did you want to move on to like the behind the scenes? We could spend another two hours talking about all the behind yes. the scenes stuff. Like it's it's really fascinating. And if you want to, I encourage you to like look it up some of it yourself. But we're going to tell you like, just like a little bit of it. Believe it or not, development for Avatar started as early as 1996. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cameron's said to Entertainment Weekly as well as like a kind of a Q&A thing he did for the 10th anniversary that he wrote like an 80 page treatment creating the world and the characters. And he said he's kind of inspired by a dream that he he had of like a bioluminescent forest. Bioluminescent just means that the light is coming from some kind of biology, I, as far as I know. <laughs> so a forest that lights itself at night. Um, and he has like a huge fondness maybe obsession with with the ocean and the way of water and like the natural beauty in the world um and then in 2006 he writes the, the first screenplay for avatar and i thought this was really interesting avatar and um an adaptation of the manga battle angel were taking place at the same time and he wanted to utilize uh actors playing CGI characters in a CGI world. And it was just easier to, to do Avatar than Battle Angel. And Battle Angel eventually became Alita Battle Angel, directed by Robert Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. Which was, it had cool action scenes, but it, it wasn't no Avatar. No. <laughs> um, the reason for the 10-year gap between 96 and 2006 is because when he was writing the story and everything and talking to the people who would be making the technology, there was just no way to execute his vision in a way that was satisfactory with the limitations of the technology. And that kind of reminds me of uh, kind of how Terminator 2 came to be because he had the idea for the liquid Terminator since the beginning, since the 80s. He wanted that in the movie, but there was no way to do that on a technical level. So... You just kind of put it on the shelf and then Terminator 2 happens and gives us one of the best villains in an action movie ever, in my opinion. So as you know, in between the 10 year gaps, you see CGI characters like Gollum, like King Kong and Davy Jones in Pirates of the Caribbean series. And he's like, okay, I think the technology is ready for Avatar. And when the film was in production, people had doubts. People expected the film to flop because who cares about alien blue people? Um, even Fox, the, the studio at, that was um, funding the movie, they uh, funded a $10 million proof of concept thing to show that, you know, Avatar can happen. Uh, it's, you know, it's kind of like you're, okay, we'll test to see this idea, see if, how it looks, if it works. And it looked good and eventually started getting cold feet and they were like, we're going to pass on Avatar. So Cameron and his team, they go to Disney and Disney's like, hell yes, we want, we want to work on this James Cameron thing. And then Fox was like, well, now we want him back. 
and they enacted their first refusal rights and decided to move forward with Avatar. It's ironic that <laughs> Disney would eventually that buy Disney Fox would eventually, yeah. <laughs> and get to do Avatar anyway. Uh, so during the production of the movie, you know, people like to gossip. People like to be, you know, doomsayers. Uh, during the original production of Titanic, which we will get more into when we cover the film, there were pieces about how this is going to be a disaster. This movie's too expensive, and why are they doing it? It's going to be another Ishtar, which is another like famous like box office bomb. Very expensive to make, but it did not make money when it came out. And the the doubters persisted even as the film was released, because when the film was released, it didn't have like a huge box office. Uh, um, like the first weekend wasn't like super. Uh, it was good, it was but it wasn't no, no, as it... as good as it cost to make. And mm-hmm. as you know, when a film's opening weekend is usually its strongest weekend, and then it kind of drops off afterwards. Um, so there are some people thinking, um, "Oh, people are going to watch this movie." There was just like a blizzard that happened on the East Coast and kept people from going to the theaters. And then some people, this uh, cinema blend writer Scott Gwynn. Uh, said that Avatar could be on the same cash track uh, as Titanic, but it's unlikely, and here's why. And he said that your your grandmother doesn't care about the fate of imaginary blue aliens, implying that older audiences wouldn't relate to the aliens as they did with Jack and Rose and Titanic. Um, he said that geeks are bad, but teenager teenage girls are worse. And what he was talking about here was that the technology and the sci-fi aspect of the the cinematic experience that is avatar would not be nothing in comparison to like the appeal of a of a star like leonardo dicaprio he also said america's attention span doesn't last that long so he's not even considering the the international market which is where this movie succeeded the most even if it has a good opening there's a bunch more movies that are going to come out and people would rather see those then keep going to see this Blue People movie. And then he closed his argument by saying, the best Cameron love stories are tragedies, not fantasies. So hindsight's uh, 2020 on these takes, I think. <laughs> this dude, damn. I mean, look, I, in the moment, everybody comes up with their own predictions, but this was off. Very off. It did get some positive reviews. Most mm-hmm. Most people... Were like they kind of mentioned the thing that we said and how it's like a, a theatrical experience. Now we didn't. I guess we didn't really talk about the significance of 3D. Are you going to elaborate on that later? A little bit, but I mean, you you could get into it because I'm I'm just going to talk about it from the technical side. Okay, so the film was meant to be seen in 3D, and 3D can kind of have like a gimmicky um, quality to it. Most of the time when you see a movie in 3D, it's like for the gimmicky scares. Like, oh, that was going to get you, but it's, it's not. It's in the movie. Um, and some 3D movies were kind of post-conversion, which means the movie wasn't filmed in 3D, but they added 3D to it as in the, like a, a gimmick to get you to, to go see it in theaters. Avatar was meant to be seen in 3D. Uh, you're making all of your movies in 3D. Why is 3D important to you? Well... 
count the number of eyes in my face. There's two of them, and you've got two, and, and all God's children got two, and pretty much every animal, every insect's got at least two, every fish has got two. We experience the world through a stereoscopic system, a visual system, and when you see stereo, uh, it gives you an enhanced sense. It triggers little regions in the brain that make you feel like you're really there. Well, what do we want to do with a movie like Avatar or the, or the sequels? We want to take you to Pandora. We want you to live it, breathe it. Um, feel that for that moment, for that period of time, those hours that you're in the dark theater, that this is a real place and you're going on a real journey. And this helps with that. Some people thought that because it was meant to be in 3D and your 3D tickets would be more expensive because it's not, it's a lot more complicated to film to, to show that than, you know, a regular 2D proje projection. So that might have contributed to its almost like $3 billion gross worldwide because <laughs> the tickets are more expensive to go see it in its intended uh, version. There's also some, it's, it's stuff to, to, to make me think. There are critiques of the film's use of the white savior trope and also the, um, this is the term. I don't know if there's like a better term for it, but the noble savage trope, uh, which kind of implies that the way of like these indigenous people, it's a kind of patronizing look at them. It's like, oh, these people are like not civilized, so therefore their life is more pure. It's, it makes them look really naive. And uh, in real life, it can rewrite the history and the culture of these people. And it's usually from the, the white person's perspective, mm -hmm. um, which, yeah, you, you could say Avatar is guilty of these tropes, but the Navi aren't really real. Their language and culture is made up for the movie. So I feel like it's not as problematic, but you do have the fact that most of like the human characters are all white, white people mm -hmm. and all of the people of color play the Navi. Typically. It kind of, it kind of like makes them, makes them all the same, I guess, which, yeah, I, I would, I could see criticisms about that. Like you're oversimplifying this, the culture of indigenous people. Uh, but I don't know, the Navi aren't aren't real, and I feel like they aren't as perfect as some other um, transgressors of this trope. There's an implication that the, the tribes don't all get along because he has to go and convince them. And the only way he can convince them is he's he's writ ridden this, like, dragon thing. The Navi were about to kill Jake just for, like, walking around but the will of AWOP prevents them from, from killing them. I think it's funny that Jake never never realized that Neytiri was going to kill him on sight. Oh, she was close to killing them. She was about to kill him on sight. And then the jellyfish said no. <laughs> <laughs> and then he like, he, he's the first jellyfish thing that comes to him. He like bats away. And she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> this thing saved you. He has no idea. The, the white savior trope isn't like... It's not a a bad thing that Jake is like the hero of the movie. It's it's more of a um, when it's only people that look like Sam Worthington that are saving the the minority groups. I think it's it's more symptomatic of a greater issue than like this movie's bad because the white guy's the hero. It's more complicated than that. Well, how so? 
if it's just if you just one movie, then it's it's just one movie. But the problem is, usually in movies, it is the white guy saving the minority group. Mm-hmm. You don't see as many movies as like a a person of color saving their own people. Does that make sense? Mm, yes. Like it's it's Hillary Swank coming in to save the kids from the inner city with education, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's not people that look like Zoe Zaldana. And if it is, it's because she's assisted by Hillary Swank. Well, it seems like, I mean, look, the, I think the white savior trope is still very much in play here. Mm-hmm. But I still think that it shows like the ability to like be open to new experiences, to be, to find to, to find a new a new meaning in life because he first identifies himself as a marine right but yeah. then he kind of embraces mother nature more as he's learning through the navi but the, the navi still has a lot of heroes is the thing like they're like you know you have um like you have natiri you have like her the man who's supposed to be like what's his name um sute sute um like the navi and all, like all the navi come together like it wasn't just jake who does this it's like he has yeah, to, but he, they all act because he comes and saves them. Yeah, and that's why I'm saying it's a pro and con thing. Like, it's still there. It is symptomatic of the issue, but I don't think that's, like, a knock against the movie. Because mm-hmm. you kind of need it. I, I can't imagine this film playing from, like, the Navi's perspective. It would be a very different film. And I don't know if it would hit as hard as it would. Like, now we can going into the second one because but even then jake's still the main hero which he was human we've already seen the world through his eyes before Mm -hmm. um that's why the film can begin with the navi we're already familiar with the navi we're familiar with jake sully yeah but for a first film i can't really imagine this taking place from the navi's perspective right he didn't need to be like a white dude but he he was that's yeah you can't really change well, that. Well, actually, and... no, you probably could tell the story from I... Pocahontas did it. Yeah, but you have someone like John Smith as our like Yeah. He's like the the white savior of that. I don't know. It's uh it's some it's a more complex problem. You know, you don't you don't fix it by by changing one thing. You have to change it by no, having it, people it... who who come from those backgrounds tell the story. But the Navi aren't real, so it's James Cameron made them up, so well, and what also makes me feel a bit better about it is that the movie is very critical of just like of a of a capitalistic society in general. It's not like yeah. oh, you need to do this uh, because it will be better for you. Because even he says like we have nothing that the Navi want, you know. And James Cameron has has been critical of these systems before. It's been there since the beginning. He's, I mean, hell, he had vegan menus. <laughs> as as his catering like the man is a yeah. tree hugger he even says that himself he's a tree hugger so it's nice having this story being told by someone who while albeit white and and canadian or slash american you know um he is someone who is aware of these systems and is critical of them but at the same time avatar is the most money ever made by a movie <laughs> it's the irony it's it's really ironic yeah even if it wasn't the highest grossing film of all time i think he would have been very happy with the film i mean he seems mm-hmm. like a competitive guy so he would want this to happen but it is funny that the film like oh we shouldn't be led by money because that's what leads the humans to want to steal obtainium unobtainium is still we reward that message by saying you're the highest grossing film of all time 
it's ironic, <laughs> but yeah, there's some things I really quickly just wanted to talk about some of the technology. Now, this movie did uh, pioneer a lot of techniques, but there's a few that I wanted to talk about, and I wanted to talk about the influences of that. So they obviously used a variety of different sets. They had actual practical sets where they had real actors. They had completely CGI sets. They had sets where they had actors in mocap suits. And then they had a mixture of both where you had humans and CGI elements combined. The The process is complicated. I was reading about it and I still don't understand it. And I understand uh, like a lot of what happens on the film set, but even some of this stuff was like, wait, what? How did you combine the two? Like it doesn't <laughs> reading about it made no sense. I was like, uh-huh. I'm confused. But some of the things that I thought was really interesting, because I wanted to see how did this movie influence movie productions moving forward? And it had some pretty big substantial contributions to cinema. Uh mainly how they shot the 3D. So they had this uh, fusion camera system. Oh my god. It was a fusion camera system, and it had different components to complete pictures. Rather than using two separate cameras, the fusion camera system was one camera that was capable of processing multiple aspects at the same time. It had a uh, a central system called CamNet that was able to that had all these different design devices working. It integrated recording images and playback options. It was really utilized to bring. To, to infuse 3D into the production of it. Um, the, the, from the article that I was reading, it said the use of CamNet in the Fusion camera system cut the editing process in, hand, in half and enhanced the quality of filmmaking. Wow. Now, what I will say is the Fusion camera system wasn't built specifically for Avatar. I mean, the, the, the rig that they used was built for it. But they actually used this in a few productions before that were utilizing... Um, that, that utilized 3D. It originally started in 2008 with the U2 in 3D concert movie. <laughs> then there was Journey to the Center of the Earth. Then there was the Jonas Brothers, the 3D ex- concert experience. Final Destination. I think they shot some Hannah Montana stuff with it. And wow. then in December 18 of 2009, you get Avatar. But since then, it's still been used in a bunch of other stuff. Step Up 3D, Resident Evil Afterlife, Tron Legacy, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, Transformers Dark of the Moon, uh, Spy Kids all, all, all the time in the world, Hugo, Life of Pi. You know, it would go on to be used in a lot of other systems. And not another film that it was used in was Alita, Battle Angel. Mm-hmm. So this was a system that was being used for concert films. But after Avatar, you really started seeing it being put in motion, major motion pictures like Life of Pi. And that movie won an Academy Award. The article goes on to say, but Cameron sees 3D as a subtler experience to film the live action sequences of Avatar. He used a modified version of the fusion camera. The new 3D camera creates an augmented reality view for Cameron as he shoots Sensing its position on a motion capture stage, then integrating the live actors into CG environments on the viewfinder. It's a new unique way of shooting stereo movies, says visual effects supervisor Steven Rosenbaum. Cameron uses it to look into the environment. It's not about beating people over the head with the visual spectacle. And there's actually a really interesting like uh, video where... For the release of Avatar 2, he actually went on G4 TV where he took this camera rig, right? And <laughs> G4 he had to TV, op- the, the video game 
channel. Yeah, the, well, that was on TV before it became a live stream, a TV, a Twitch thing. Uh, but he took, he took, he takes the camera rig on there. He explains kind of how it works. It's a massive, it's a massive thing. And he said that he was the camera operating most of the film. And now, I, I, whenever I see, like at CES, people were showing off 3D cameras, 3D mm -hmm. camcorders, 3D everything, and it's always this side-by-side -side lens yeah, configuration. It's, it's a huge mistake. You see, they're making the same mistake that we made back, you know, eight, nine years ago, which is, oh, you just put two cameras side-by-side -side and you've got it. Mm -hmm. Well, human vision works that way, but when you're watching a movie, it can't work that way because you can't adjust the stereo space after it's baked into the image when it's been shot by the right. camera guys a year earlier or whatever. And it'll, it'll rip your eyes out of your head if you try to shoot everything with the two lenses side by side so the beam splitter allows you to essentially have the two lenses go inside each other you know so that you can get that interocular distance down to a much which means distance. you can you can decide where that 3d point is going to be that focal point how things are going to jump out yeah, it's how much depth how much depth it's, is yeah be. right it's how much depth and by reducing the depth as you get closer to an uh, you know a person let's say in a close-up uh, it actually makes it watchable which mm. was the which is the trick to doing smooth 3d for movies where you have to cut from one thing to another to another, from a close-up to a wide shot or back from a wide shot to a close-up. One of the things that's really interesting that came from this film is the use of the shift from motion capture to performance capture. We, we talked about uh, motion capture on our Lord of the Rings Yes, episode. which is basically the actors putting on a mocap suit and the cameras, computers reading like the, the, the points, the reflective points on that suit and putting mm. it in the computer software. So yeah. you get human movements, but digitally. You get that recorded digitally yeah. in, a, in, a, in a piece of software. But part of a, a performance is, you know, what, what is their face doing? You know, and for Lord of the Rings, uh, the two towers, they looked at Andy Serkis's face and tried to copy it. But in some cases, they would they would change it to like either tone it down or, or or add something to it that wasn't a part of his performance. Another film that you mentioned actually earlier that kind of helped push chain cameras toward making this film was Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, where you get Davy Jones. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing about Davy Jones is he had to, the actor Bill Nye, 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 wore a motion capture tracksuit that meant the animators at Industrial Light and Magic did not have to reshoot the scene in the studio with him or on the motion capture stage. He wore makeup around his eyes and mouth to splice into the computer-generated shots, but the images of his eyes and mouth were not used. Niley only wore prosthetic ones with the blue-colored tentacles for a specific scene. Uh, so if you look at, like, behind the scenes, he has, like, a couple of points, and he's got some makeup. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing that Avatar did was Avatar, they found a way to capture the actor's performances, their facial performances. That's why it's called performance capture. The way they do that is by giving the actors a helmet and that helmet having like a stick that comes out of it. And on that stick, at the end of that stick, there's a camera that's pointed directly at the actor's faces. James Cameron worked with Weta, who worked on Lord of the Rings. And this was the technology that they were using motion capture for Smeagol. But then they decided to introduce this technology into Avatar. So see, like kind of how you were saying with Smeagol, in those films, the process of motion capture served only as a starting point for animators who would finish the job with digital brushstrokes. Gollum's face was entirely animated by hand, says Weta Digital Effects Master Joe Letiri. King Kong was a third or straight performance, a third or so straight performance capture. It was never automatic. 
This time, Cameron wanted to keep the embellishment by animators to a minimum and let the actors drive their own performances. In order to pull more data from the actors' faces, Cameron's reworked an old idea he had sketched on a napkin back in 95. <laughs> Fasten a tiny camera to the front of the helmet to track every facial movement, from darting eyes and twitchy noses to furrowing eyebrows and the tricky interaction of jaws, lips, teeth, and tongue. I knew I could not fail if I had a 100% close-up of an actor 100% of all of the time that traveled with them wherever they went, he said. That really makes a close-up come alive. <clears throat> the information from the cameras produced a digital framework or rig of an actor's face. The rig was then given to a set of rules that applied. The rig was then given a set of rules that applied to the muscle movement of each actor's faces to that of Avatar or the Navi that he or she was playing. So... It, it took a lot of work, but they had a reference point, a reference where they could constantly go to. The information collected about their facial expression and eye is then transmitted to computers. According to Cameron, the method allows the filmmakers to transfer 100% of the actor's physical performances to their digital counterparts. Besides the performance capture data, which were transferred directly to computers, numerous references, camera angles gave the digital artist multiple angles of each performance. So they're really so this was that this was one of the first productions where they captured they used that kind of helmet cam to capture the actors' performances to try to keep it as authentic as possible. It makes it makes them feel uh like they're real. I don't know how to how to better say that, but you you feel their emotions more than you than other things before. I, I would no, no, say. absolutely, absolutely. And they go on to point that, most importantly, the camera recorded eye movement, a feature that prior systems lacked and made CG characters appear lifeless. Mm -hmm. That was also another thing that, like, those small little details, including eye movement, has to be taken yeah. into account. And those are, it goes back to what we were saying. It's the little details that add up. And that's why when you're watching Avatar, you're not getting the uncanny, uncanny valley uh, effect. Where it's like, oh, this yeah. is weird. It feels real and it's driven by real performances. How much of it is embellished? Who's to say? It's probably only the animators know, but the groundwork is was laid by the actors. I don't know uh, who did what, but they did a good job. <laughs> no, no, they, they did a very great job. Like in the beginning, there's like, I don't know, because it's like 2009, right? We're in 2022 watching this. In the beginning, it feels a little weird, but as the movie's going... You kind of forget. And and if you're applying that, like Industrial Light and Magic has been using this technology in a lot of Marvel films. Thanos is one of the mm -hmm. examples. I mean, James Cameron was saying that Thanos doesn't look as good as like the Navi, but that technology was still used for Thanos. Like if you go yeah. and see behind the scenes footage of it, like Josh Brolin has a helmet and he has that face cam on there because they're recording mm -hmm. all of his like facial data. And that's yeah. something that video games are using, too. Mm -hmm. Like that video games are using this technology. And it's interesting because they're also using another piece of technology from this film that was really big. What was it? I believe this is the swing camera. So the resulting swing camera, so-called because its screen could swing to any angle to give Cameron greater freedoms of movement. The swing camera has no lens at all. Only an LCD screen and markers that record its position and orientation within the volume relative to the actors. The position information is then run through an effect switcher, which feeds back low-resolution CG versions of 
the, of both the actors and the environments of Pandora to the swing cam screen in full in real time. I'm having a hard time understanding this. It's so think of it this way. Imagine okay. you and I are in like a garage, right? Okay. Using this swing camera technology, which I'm still not totally sure how it works, but essentially <laughs> instead of holding a camera, James Cameron is holding like a mini iPad. Okay. And in that iPad, he's able to see the actors as their Navi characters. And he's getting a low res image of the jungle behind them. Okay. And if in whatever direction he moves that iPad LCD monitor, he can see the jungle environment. It's a low res version of it, but he could, but he could see exactly, he could see a slice of Pandora from that little monitor. It's almost like a, a kind of augmented reality kind of thing. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's like an augmented reality, like iPad or something, you know, <laughs> that he's able to kind of get an idea as to what the camera, what the angle might look like. But he's seeing it in like real a really, time. really, really fancy Snapchat filter. Woo! Like really if, fancy. If you really want to dumb it down, it's it's a really, really fancy Snapchat filter. The way you want to think about it, too, is like think about uh, video games, uh-huh. the virtual camera system, right? Yeah. So you're like in your video game and you can pan the camera and you see the in, you see the environment that's laid out. Mm-hmm. That's a virtual camera. Yeah. Now, imagine having like a little monitor that you hold and whatever direction you point at it, you get to see the environment, the extension of that environment. But you're Nuts. filming it in your garage. Wild. You've got four walls. You you don't you know you you don't see anything. But if you've got the right setup, you've got this LCD monitor. You could be looking at a low res version of Pandora in real time. It's like, oh, look at this tree. I kind I want you to walk over here and I want you to like marvel at this tree. You have to pretend, obviously, but. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's technology that's still being used. Constantly, they did it in, in in a bunch of video games. Last of Us, God of War, video game uses this technology a lot. Some video games are so successful in putting you in that world because K- James Cameron gave them the keys. <laughs> Part of it, I mean, think about it. Like when 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 you're looking at games that like they're so cinematic when they're capturing these performances, you've got like someone who's holding the camera there, but it's not mm-hmm. a camera. It's a little L- LCD monitor. It's a little mini iPad. Wow. And with it, you could set your focal length. You could go wide. You could go telephoto. You could close the aperture, open it up, and it affects it. You That's know? really cool. Resident Evil 5 was the first video game to use the technology, which was developed for the 2009 app film Avatar. Wow. Here's the description. The virtual camera allowed James Cameron to direct scenes within his computer-generated world. Through this virtual camera, the director would not see Zoe Zaldana, but but he would see her 10-foot tall blue-skinned CGI character, Natiri, in a CG environment. The in-camera CGI uh, had the resolution of a video game, so after Cameron completed filming and editing a sequence, the Weta visual effects company would work on it for months to create the final high-resolution photorealistic image. See, that little monitor, before it, you'd have to film it with digital cameras, but James wouldn't have a reference. He wouldn't know what he was right. looking at. He'd just have to use his imagination. But now using this little little iPad, I'm saying iPad, it's not an iPad, but it's like an iPad-like. You it's know? A, tab- a tablet. It's like a tablet, yeah. He's able to point it and he could see 
what the environment's looking like. And he goes, oh, you know what? I want this here. I want this there, you know? And he could, and the interesting thing that I read is he could do a take with an actor, right? Mm -hmm. Finish that take, the actor leaves. But if he wants, he could replay that specific scene that the actor filmed and shoot it from a different angle. So he's able to manipulate and find new camera angles because it's all virtual. Mm. That's insane. Yeah. Like you're able to go in and really make the CGI world more tangible. Mm-hmm. And that's how they were able to film those sequences. Like when they're getting off the helicopter and we were talking about how there's a little that tasteful wobble. Yeah, <laughs> that's how they got it. Uh, that's so it's really cool how they they made this movie. Like the the things that the the work that they put into with the technology, and I I think it goes to show how how great a thing you can have if the person at the top understands what everybody's job is and what what they're doing, you know? Because you have you have these idiots who are in charge of things that they don't understand, but they think they do because they're rich, and then they go and fuck it up because <laughs> they don't understand what people's jobs are. But I feel like Cameron, he understands what their jobs are. And he understands the technology. Well, I'll say this. He's always been pioneering new technology. And I'm sure he didn't know what some of this stuff was doing. I'm sure there were some coders that had to explain to him. But mm-hmm. they didn't rush the sequel. They didn't rush the, pre- the making of this film. He knew this film wasn't ready for the 90s. This, this, he had this ready since the 90s. Well, the ideas, the seeds were planted. The, the seeds were planted. But he, he was like, it's not ready. There's no way. The technology wasn't there. He saw what other people were doing, like Gore Verbinski and Industrial Light and Magic and what other films were doing. He's like, okay, it's ready. Now I'm going to go out there and I'm gotta, I got to learn how to do this. And I got to find the right people, get the right team together, and that way we're going to do this. And, 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 and putting himself in there. And it's one of those things where it's like, spare no expense, which they didn't because this movie's expensive as fuck. <laughs> and the sequel is too. But this is what happens when, when you have the right people at the right time, the right team, the right studio behind you who's not saying, hey, we need this Avatar sequel to come out uh, in 2011, two years after the prequel, because it, it's the highest grossing film of all time. We have to capitalize on that. No, it's coming out 13 years later. <laughs> and what has he been doing in those 13 years? He broke down. He was writing the story. They were trying to figure out what the essence of it was. They were trying to get the technology ready because this is technology that they have to use underwater now. And God mm-hmm. knows what else they're doing for it. You know, yeah. this is what happens when you have time, when you have money and you have effort and dedication. And a lot of days you have either a filmmaker who doesn't know what the fuck they're doing, a studio who's rushing everyone to just get shit out there. Because we need content. Because we need content. It's not cinema anymore. It's content. There has to be. We have to have all these stories happening at once. We need a constant flow of it. I don't care that you haven't seen your family. You got to get back on your computer and and make Spider-Man swing faster or whatever um it's and it's it's just it's a studio it's a filmmaking thing and it's a team effort and this is why i appreciate avatar more than i did before because it works as a film but it also stands as a testament as to what happens when all these things align beautifully damn makes me want to want i can't wait dude i'm so excited for (laughs) and this is a project that's been 13 years in the making and i'm like you know what I, I can't wait for it because, again, it seems Just like... Let him cook. <laughs> it seems like we're going to get that that perfect welding of all these things again. 
So yeah. we'll see. I mean, I could be wrong. The movie could be bad, but I'll still appreciate the effort that went into it because at mm-hmm. least a lot of effort went into it. I think like the the dismissal that we were just all okay with for saying Avatar was predictable. It's it's okay at best. Like that's yeah. Come on. It, Let's... Even if even if you don't like it, because the criticism still stands, it's not invalid. But mm-hmm. I think the focus is elsewhere, and I appreciate yeah. it more now. If you still don't yeah. like it, that's fine. That's not, you know, but to dismiss all those, to say, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, not that many people did, you know, or it's like, ah, whatever. It's like, no, there's a lot of good came from this movie. Even if you don't like the film, this film yeah, would go sure. on to help a lot of future productions and the technology is there because of it okay um i feel like it's time to move on to our quotes right Mm-hmm. okay so this is the part of the episode where in lieu of a five-star rating system uh we describe how we feel about the movie with a quote from the movie usually um the quote can be uh, our favorite quote it could be a quote that makes us laugh or it could be a quote that kind of summarizes uh the conversation we just had Usually George goes first, and usually George breaks the rules. And I'm breaking the rules again. <laughs> There's two quotes for this one. One okay. that I think is funny is, uh, you crossed the line. <laughs> I, I was laughing. I rewinded it multiple times, and it's because it's in our intro. Go ahead. Go to the intro. Try to see if you can find it. Uh, but the second quote is kind of how I feel about it and kind of like, damn, James, you son of a bitch. Uh, where Jake Solly's like, Sometimes your whole life boils down to one insane move. And I feel like Avatar was really that one insane move. I, we, we think it might be Titanic, but Avatar was a selling, big Selling the Terminator franchise for a dollar. <laughs> uh, well, it, well, actually, you could capitalize and say that James Cameron has had a lot of those moments. Selling yeah. to Terminator rights for a dollar, <laughs> making Titanic, making Terminator 2 seven years after the, the first one. And now Doing making all those Avatar underwater too. documentaries. Yeah. But I think there's something special about Avatar. It was a new IP yeah. in an era that was increasingly IP driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody had an idea about it. It was people. It was very easy for people to write it off. Whose grandma's going to go watch a bunch of blue aliens? It did not have the biggest opening of any film. It, it didn't have the biggest opening weekend. It was a slow burn. But it resonated with a lot of people. And Avatar was an insane film to put all that bet on. But it worked. And he's doing it again. <laughs> so Nice. That's a good quote. I like that one. Um, my quote is in a similar vein. Uh, it's also about insanity. Um, it is when Natiri's mother, she's like the spiritual guide. Um, and she tastes Jake Sully's blood. And she's like, hmm. Okay, it is decided. My daughter will teach you our ways. Learn well, Jake Sully, and we will see if your insanity can be cured. Um, and the first time I watched it, I, her insanity, the insanity that she talks about, I thought it was just like this idiot who was just like, uh, I'm gonna go to Pandora. Oh, I'm gonna go touch everything. I'm gonna just throw myself into this world completely. That's the insanity. But... Now I'm like, maybe the insanity that she's referring to is, is like old way of thinking, mm-hmm. you know, the way of thinking from, from the, the sky people's world, which is what they call the humans. That's the insanity because to them, the way they live 
is the sane way to live. Mm-hmm. And it kind of reminds me of how I changed my mind about the movie after talking about people who talking to people who love it and finding out how it was made and everything and watching it again. I think this the insanity was the previous way I thought of Avatar. And I believe it has been cured now. Nice. Okay. I like that. Okay. Well, that about concludes our episode of Avatar. Uh, next, in two weeks, we'll be talking about another one of James Cameron's movies, Titanic, uh, from 1997, with Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. It's a movie where the big boat sinks. <laughs> the film is celebrating its 25th anniversary. Yes, I think so. Which that movie was celebrating... That movie... Wait, when did the Titanic sink? Oh, I don't know. It sank on April 15th of 1912. So when they re-released the film in 2012, it was 100 years. That's that's why they re-released the Titanic in 2012, because it was 100 years. Uh, so now it's been 10 years, so it's going to be 110 years. So it's <laughs> 25, anniversary, 25 years after the film came out in theaters, 100 years. 10 years after the 100th anniversary it's just, it's a special it's it's the time to rewatch titanic like let's yeah it, it it seems appropriate to do it now yeah and uh damn i'm already thinking of that song dude we can't play any of that song when we do the episode why doesn't that suck because it's right yeah mm, but everybody was, knows it everybody That's, knows who sings that song again um celine dion oh is it okay yeah. I think that's what made my dad a Celine Dion fan. It made a lot of Celine Dion fans. I'm gonna tell yeah. you what. <laughs> it's a great song. It's so great good song. that even after watching Avatar, which we both very much enjoyed, it's like, yeah, this doesn't hit as hard. I think as. I like it, it, the, the sci-fi nature of Avatar appeals to me more than Titanic does. But even mm-hmm. with that bias, the Titanic songs is fucking amazing. <laughs> no, no, it's incredible. <laughs> Uh, so if you like the episode, uh, um, consider following us on social media. We have a Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, at Retrograde underscore pod. We have a YouTube channel, Retrograde Podcast, three words. We have a Discord server where uh, if you like the vibe, if you like, if you like movies, um, we talk about movies there. We'll get together and play games and stuff. You'll find all of the updates Next year, in January, we will be launching our Patreon episode. Uh, our, our, we will be launching our Patreon, and we're going to have some episodes ready towards the beginning of the year. It's going to be really exciting. Uh, we thank you all for listening to us. If you're a long-time listener, if this is the first time you've heard us, appreciate you a lot. Um, it's Honestly, one of my favorite things to do is record these episodes and edit them and maybe help people appreciate movies in a different way. I love it. It's my favorite thing. No, seriously, I appreciate all the, all the support from, from you guys. Um, it gotten some good feedback and, you know, people are like, I didn't ever thought of it that way. And it's like, you know what? I, there are some movies that we, that we revisit that I'm like, I, it's it's great because I wouldn't have re- revisited the film if it wasn't for the podcast, and I'm glad I did. Like this film, mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have seen the first one again, but I'm glad I did because I changed my mind. So 
Thank you very much. We appreciate that you guys enjoy the shows, the, the episodes. They are long, but I feel like we, we, we put a lot of work in to make sure that they're that you get some value out of it, some ed- something mm-hmm. educational or like a fun fact. So thank you. We appreciate you guys. Right. And with that, we will see you in two weeks. Bye-bye.